www son of a bitch. <laughs> All right. Get your set over with that son of a bitch. All right. I think John has been destroyed, man. I got this one. That was good. members and welcome to episode 18 of the plastic posse podcast sponsored by goodman models i am joined by three great friends of mine who are all terrific modelers from virginia we have tj holler from here in utah we have doug big t smith coming to us from the berg we have john jb banani how you guys doing i'm over here shaking my head yeah i'm good i'm good <laughs> I'm doing great. I get my first jab tomorrow, so I'm pretty stoked about that and ready awesome. to do some modeling over the weekend. How you doing, TJ? Oh, I'm good. I'm good. Can't complain, I guess. It wouldn't do you any good. You could. It just doesn't do you any good. <laughs> That's true. That's true. I try not to, though. It's good policy. Well, we have another fantastic podcast for you today. We'll talk about our perspectives on all things scale modeling, and we also have another fantastic Plastic Posse guest interview with Spencer Pollard. Spencer is a world-class modeler, author, and longtime scale modeling publications editor. You guys are going to want to stick around for that. It's a terrific interview. We wanted to let everyone know that episode 18 of the Triple P is sponsored by Rick Lewis, Terry Wilkinson, James Cann, and the voice of Bob. We really appreciate the support from you guys. Really, really, thanks a lot. Tell me more about the voice of Bob. So I actually wondered where that came from, and it looks like he's actually a voiceover announcer out of L.A. So um, I guess he heard the show. He liked what he heard, but that's really, really cool that uh, he threw us a little bit of support. Very cool. So thank you, the voice of Bob. Thank you so much. I mean, the voice of Bob, nobody has a cooler <laughs> name. I mean, even the, the shizzle grizzle here doesn't have as cool a name as the voice of Bob. So anyway, and then James, James can, he, I hope I said his name, right. He's uh, from LPJ models. And uh, that was really, really cool that he kind of found the show. And, you know, we've been kind of shouting out his work a little bit. So very cool. And then of course, uh, Rick and Terry are, longtime supporters of the posse. Anyway, we just really appreciate the support, you guys. It means a lot that you guys uh, like what we're doing. These members of the posse used our paypal.me link uh, to help us out. We really appreciate it. As we've said, if you're enjoying our podcast and you'd like to help the posse, it's really easy. It is really easy. Just go to our website, plasticpossepodcast.buzzsprout.com. No www. In the upper right-hand corner, there's a little heart icon, and you can access this heart icon on any of our podcast episode pages on the site. Just click the little heart, and you can donate any amount you would like. We really appreciate the support. Or 
If you don't want to donate, that's okay too. So you can still support the podcast by taking a few moments, leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or whatever platform you get your podcasts from. Five-star reviews really help us get the show out to more people who are interested in scale modeling podcasts. And plus, deep down in your heart, you know we deserve those five stars. Amen, brother. The Plastic Posse is sponsored by Goodman Models, makers of the Super Sanding Blocks. If you want to be able to sand with precision, plain edges without rolling over the side, and have more control than with traditional sandpaper or sanding sticks, you need a set of these on your bench. You can order your very own set over at GoodmanModels.com. Besides the Triple P, that's us, there are some other great scale modeling podcasts and social media content providers out there. You guys should check them all out. We've got On the Bench with Dave, Ian, and Julian, Plastic Model Mojo with Mike and Dave, Just Making Conversation, James and Malcolm, Scale Model Podcast with Stuart and Friends, and Model Geeks, Darren and the Crew. All right. Other than podcasts, there's Brew Pies with Frets with Stephen Lee. It's a terrific blog. We've got Jim Bates, a Scale Canadian TV on YouTube and a blog as well. By the way, I want to I say something about um, Plastic Model Mojo's episode. They talked about weathering. I really dug that episode. That was, that was a lot of fun, and they had some, some really good insights. Really appreciated that one. Yeah, I thought it was a, a really good episode as well, Doug. I thought the way that they kind of broke into it and kind of dove into the details of why they were frustrated with different parts of weathering and sort of that double-edged sword of all the choices and all the products that we have, but that could sometimes be a little overwhelming. I thought that was a really great discussion that David Mike did. I concur. All right, now it's time for our social media shout-out segment, and I'm going to kick this off with a brief update on our Instagram account. So please go check that out if you have the chance. It's just Plastic Posse Podcast. And we are at over 960 followers, which is pretty cool. So we're creeping up to that magic 1000 mark, which is, uh, of course, doesn't matter because it's instant Instagram, but it is still pretty cool to, you know, saying, hey, a thousand people like our account. So please go ahead and check that out. You'll see work from all the Posse members on there. And then we do episode reminders the day the episode is dropped to, so you can go listen to it getting started with the segment proper i'm going to start at youtube and this isn't necessarily a, a smaller channel he's actually pr pretty big but if you're not into miniature wargaming painting then you may not know who he is and it's a guy named brent who runs goobertown hobbies um and you can find him on youtube under goobertown hobbies and you know his his videos are I put in the show notes, he's essentially the Bob Ross of miniature painting. If you watch his videos, I mean, he's he's got a really soothing voice. He's super chill and just like like Bob Ross. And, and anyone that's old enough to have watched Bob Ross, I did when I was younger, you know, he's everything is good. It, there are no mistakes and you just roll with the punches. And that's kind of how how Brent treats his the whole his whole hobby in. It, it, I think it's really refreshing and, and uh, I would recommend anyone that's even if you're not into miniature wargaming painting, he does a lot of uh, Warhammer uh, fantasy stuff, but it, go check it out and, you know, give him a, give him a subscription and just enjoy someone who just loves their hobby. Are you a longtime subscriber or did you find him pretty recently? TJ? No, I've been a subscriber of his for a while. And I, I would also like to say he also has a, a podcast called paint bravely the podcast um with him and and now i can't remember his name but he has a the guy he does the podcast with he has a youtube channel called 
eBay rescue miniatures. Um, I can't remember his name. He's out in Nevada. Um, and their, their podcast is really good. They're kind of new. They kind of started around the same time as us. They focus like on miniature wargaming paintings, painting. And, uh, that's a good podcast too. Uh, we have no affiliation with them. I've never talked to any of these guys, but I mean, if they're, they're really cool and like laid back guys, and I would recommend checking out Brent and I feel bad because I can't remember his name, but, um, the other, the other, uh, YouTube channel. If he's from Nevada, maybe reach out and see if he'd like to join us for a day at nationals. Yeah. I think he's in Reno, so he's not too terribly far away. Okay. That's a good idea. Now, my uh, social media shout out this week is for a Facebook page called MH Scale Models. Um, it's on Facebook. So you just facebook.com forward slash MH Scale Models. And it's mostly like uh, detail parts, resin accessories, things for aircraft models, but there's also some builds. And they just dropped this uh, 132nd scale Tiger Moth. That's just simply stunning. I don't know if you guys have uh, seen that, but just a beautiful build of the Tiger Moth. Yeah, I saw it, Scott. I shared it on my Facebook page. It's absolutely drop dead gorgeous. Uh, you know, it's with the earth and dark green on top and then the yellow on the bottom. It's simply a stunner. It's gorgeous photography as well. You know, a little bit of a spoiler alert. We're going to talk to Spencer Pollard later in the episode. And we talk about actually a couple of different uh, Tiger Moth builds that he's done in there. And they're both stunning as well. You know, I'm not necessarily the biggest biplane guy in the world, but man, that particular aircraft seems to have a lot of really interesting, eye-catching, stunning paint jobs that you could put on that thing. It's a a pretty interesting subject. Yeah, I agree. It's, uh, you know, I don't know if I'll ever build an aircraft, um, but this certainly jumps a few on the list. These guys are doing stellar work with the kits. All right. And uh, we're going to jump back over to Instagram. And I found a fellow on Instagram. His name is David Ugolini. Hopefully I did not butcher that too bad. But on Instagram, he goes under uh, his handle is gizmo underscore paints. So G-I-Z-M-O underscore paints. I want to say he's a he's a full-time commission painter for um, like Wargaming Miniatures. But I noticed him originally when he he was work i think he might still be working on it a uh chaos space marine decimator which is essentially a giant walking mechanical demon i'm not really sure i sent it to the one group chat we're in a couple weeks ago it has like a shoulder pad that has looks like a piece of burnt metal like the chaos star that's like in warhammer 40,000 the the bad guys have this six or eight pointed star i don't remember but the the shoulder pad of the the thing has a half of the chaos star, and he painted it. And I I swear it looks like actual molten metal. I, it's probably some of the best. That effect is really popular in a uh, miniature painting right now, and it's probably the best I've ever seen. I mean, it legit looks like molten metal is on this thing's shoulder pad. And the the shoulder pad you could I mean it fits over your thumb. That's how small it is. Uh, that's high, high praise, TJ. And we'd also like to say Plastic Posse Podcast and the social media shoutouts. Uh, no social media content providers were actually harmed in the making of this segment. If we get anybody's names wrong, we really apologize. But uh, we love uh, finding these these content creators and then sharing them with you guys. And 
as always, uh, they'll be in the show notes for each episode, and we'll also have them on the Facebook page and also our Instagram page, right? Right, TJ? That's right. Yeah, and so tonight we we also have a wild card, and and we're gonna we're gonna plug our esteemed guest later in the show. So if you go over to Facebook and check out Spencer Pollard Models, that's where you can find all of Spencer's work, and he's super active there, and he's willing to answer questions and really have a great discussion around the models that he's building. So be sure to check it out. And I, I'm going to jump in with a second wild card. This is a, a last minute edition. I added it right before we started recording, but there is a miniature painter. Uh, she's a Twitch partner. So she work. I guess that means she works with Twitch. She has an agreement. Um, with, I don't know if anyone knows what Twitch is, but it's like a live streaming thing. It's big with gaming, but and I've discovered recently a lot of miniature painters do it too. Well, they'll just sit and you watch them paint and they'll answer questions and it's a whole thing. Apparently um, I'm, I'm a little late to that. I, I haven't really dug into it too much, but uh, she is on Twitter and she goes, her name is Nikki Sullivan. And I think her Twitter handle is Nikki Coles N I K K I K O L L S. And uh, I'll put a link to her. She's fairly prolific on, on Twitter. And she's also on Instagram. I've, I found super talented, um, she's also a full-time commission painter, just ridiculous talent. Yeah. Her work's stunning. I'm looking at some of the photographs right now. They're almost mini vignettes and simply gorgeous. And the photography is, leaves no doubt in her skills, man. I'm staring at this one. I don't even want it's like a dude with a green Cape and he's, you know, beating up some, or the, the blue guys. I, I, I mean, I'm ignorant when it comes to Warhammer. So I only address them as colors, but um, <laughs> I mean, so that that's is, pretty sweet. That is uh, Lion L. Johnson, which is the Primarch of the Dark Angel Space Marines. Okay. So he's like the original Dark Angels chapter Space Marine. Um, that's a Forge World miniature that is quite impressive. And he's getting ready to, and already has killed a bunch of Night Lords, which are traitors. They're, they're the the quote-unquote bad guys nice that is a stunning miniature that is beautiful yeah i'll be sure to uh, post this on our facebook page and maybe i'll even copy some pictures directly over of course citing her work because it's it definitely needs to be shared i wish i was on twitter i'm not on twitter maybe i should get on twitter you know i was i was telling scott before we all hopped on like a hobby twitter is like a real thing um, and it's big too, which is, sh- is shocking to me because I don't particularly care for Twitter. Yeah, uh, I I join Twitter to to follow comedians uh, that I like. And that's pretty much it. And uh, then I found out that hobby Twitter is a real thing, and there's lots of in in both miniature painting and traditional scale modelers. There's tons of them. And I know, you know, a little spoiler alerts. I think Spencer Spencer mentions it in the interview, but um. I think he's pretty active on Twitter himself. So he is not alone. There's, there's tons of people. Yeah. You know, maybe it's interesting. It's an interesting topic. I should say we, we should maybe expand on because in addition to Twitter, there's a huge, you know, Reddit community as well that I'm just not really tuned in with, but there's a ton of hobby stuff going on there and really just shows how diverse the hobby is. Maybe we can, you know, delve into it. One of these segments in a future episode. Yeah, that'd be a good one. And and just to keep that ball rolling, apparently there's also a lot of painters on TikTok, which 
did not know that someone just recently told me that and I I looked into it and it is 100% accurate. And Twitch. If if TJ's too old for TikTok, what does that make us, Scott? <laughs> you guys probably like send uh, letters back and forth with in progress builds. <laughs> but I do get the uh, forever stamp so the price never goes up for me. Ah. <laughs> You guys live so close, you probably like take your stuff to Denny's, sit down and have, you know, a Grand Slam breakfast. <laughs> you know what, Scott? Why have we not thought of this yet? A couple we could set up a little mini build on the, you know, just ask for a bigger booth. Something with a little more light so we can pull out our reading glasses to see the menus better. Well, you have your Something pen like light that. for that, that you judge with. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, <laughs> oh, man. All right. Great job, TJ. Has a great uh, social media shout out. As always, if, if you've got some social media shout outs, drop those on our Facebook page. You can message us or you can also email us at plasticpossypodcast at gmail.com. Doug, what's, uh, what's our listener feedback uh, looking like this time? We've got some stuff uh, to talk about. Oh, yeah. About. We've got a lot. Excited to read this. Uh, we've got one. Start with Jamie Anderson. Oh, sorry. Jamie Adamson says, Hi, guys. Would you mind giving the Houston IPMS show a totally shameless and self-centered plug? It's May 8th, and we can't wait. Uh, he says the details we found over on the IPMS Houston Facebook page. It's And the theme will be Call of the Wild. Thanks, guys. You're awesome. Well, thank you, Jamie. Great stuff. Yeah, it's going to be fun to see shows again. We've got one from Charlie C.J. Johnson. He enjoyed episode 17 so much. It was another great podcast. He wanted to share his Facebook page, CJ's A to Z Models. For those that would like to check out his work, I'm just a standard guy who picked the hobby back up three years ago, and you guys have really persuaded me to do even better. He's open to feedback and critique as he's always looking to better his skills. Thanks a lot, CJ. We've got Brian Schultz back. He says, another great show and an awesome interview, guys. He does have a suggestion for us. How about a group build that isn't kit or subject specific? More general, like something or anything with wheels, props, tracks, rockets, etc. That way, a guy could probably just pick something out of his stash. Thanks, Brian. What do you guys think? Yeah, I think. Um, I mean, if you look at the the group build that's really blown up and really did well, it was actually very specific. It was around a, not only a specific subject but a kit. I, I, I don't know. It's a great idea. Maybe we can discuss that a little later. Absolutely, I'm looking forward to that too. We've got uh, Cullen Bailey. Hi, Posse. Just enjoyed the latest episode of the pod. As always, a great listen and has me itching to get back to the bench after work. The podcast has been a great companion throughout COVID and has helped me broaden my modeling horizons into sci-fi and armor. I particularly enjoy the roundtable sessions and hearing views from different modelers. Great stuff and keep it up. He also has a group build suggestion. How about the Edward 148 Spitfire Mark I? Nice sub-variants and marking options for historic airframes. And a nice model out of the box. Has great basis for super detailing weather and weathering. It's, good. it's a good suggestion. I think Spitfire is something that I've been wanting to build for a while. Yeah, those Edward kits are really, really nice. And then, of course, there's that new Tamiya Mark I, a new 48 scale kit that is very, very well thought of, too. So, you know, that's something to definitely put on the list and consider. All right, our buddy Ian Bonner from Ohio, good friend of the podcast, is questioning Doug's 
is questioning Doug's awesome FW 190 he recently did for the 48 and 48 group build charity event. Why, why is he questioning? Oh, uh, he he didn't believe that Doug actually did that in 48 hours. Oh, it was pretty a pretty awesome build. Ah, yes. Well, if he was watching the show, which I think he was, you see Doug wasted no time whipping out the airbrush within literally 30 seconds of the event starting. So I, I can believe it. Great work, Doug, again on your work. Oh, line. thanks. I pre-painted all the cockpit parts um, to start with. And and I kind of just had it all planned out like we talked in our last episode. I had that that build kind of planned out on my head. And it went as smooth as I could have wanted. So it was great. Anyway, moving on. Matt McDougall, a.k.a. Dugues Models. Great episode. And I heartily endorse an aircraft as the next group build. I think we're seeing a pattern here, guys. Thinking of the elements that I've that have made the T-34 and TIE group builds work so well, simplicity of the build and general sameness of the schemes, I might suggest the 148 scale Armahabi PZL-11, literally one sprue, comes with masks, etc., and the detail is exceptional. Yeah, that's a, that's a really nice model. The only thing I'd wonder about that, uh, Matt, would just be how many people out there are really going to be in tune with that specific subject. It's pretty specialized, but um, Arma does great work from everything I've seen, and, and that's that looks like a really terrific kit. James Skiffins, our good friend from Just Making Conversation and the Model Officer's Mess a Facebook group, says, Great episode, guys. Firstly, thanks for the shout-out and taking part in the 48-hour build. We, in fact, raised 1,050 pounds for Models for Heroes. Wow, that's so that's awesome news, James. He continues looking forward to the next year. Date for you to book is March 25th, 2022 for the next 48 hour build. He also loved our interview with Rick Lawler. You know, we, I, we enjoyed that build so much. We've actually talked about it. Is this our third episode straight talking about it? It was fun. That was, that was surprisingly a real good time. Happy to participate. I'm looking forward to another one. All right. Uh, James can from LPJ models on YouTube wrote, Great episode, guys. The interview with Mr. Lawler was really interesting. Thanks, James. We love your uh, Tamiya KI-61 Hein build you did that you just posted. Hey, uh, for those of you that haven't seen it, check it out on YouTube. Right now, TJ's like, why am I on an airplane podcast? <laughs> We're going to get him to build one, aren't we? It sounds like this group build might be pushing him that direction. That's what everybody seems to want. It's got to happen eventually, right? Right. Yeah. Kitchen Scale Modeler on Instagram let us know that he looks forward to listening to our new episodes and that we have become his favorite modeling podcast. Tells us to keep up the good work. Oh, thanks, man. This is pretty awesome. We just we just do this because we enjoy it and we enjoy each other's company and we certainly enjoy all the feedback and the, the friendships we, we feel like we're building all over the world. So thank you so much for that. Uh, Instagram user... At Sorby, A-T-T-S-O-R-B-I, let us know that he or she just started listening to the podcast and thanked us for the great work and inspiration. Awesome. Instagram user, TheBigJR215, responded to TJ's post on replacing decals with painted markings on his T-3485, stated supportively they didn't have decals when, when attacking the Germans. Who needs them now? Looks awesome. Well, thank you so much. And TJ thanks you too. Don't you, TJ? I do. Thank you. (laughs) That's all we've got for our feedback. Thanks so much and keep them coming. Well, thanks for that, Doug. It's always nice to hear from our listeners and we really appreciate everything they say. We certainly read it 
and look forward to it every week. So going into our next segment, I'd love to talk about modeling styles and really about defining your style or exploring your style. You know, we've had the opportunity to interview some of the hobbies titans. Each one brings a unique perspective to the hobby and their own modeling style, which makes me ask the question, how do you describe your style? Modeling is style is as unique as someone's handwriting. There's no right or wrong way to do it, and it's always evolving. For instance, Mike Rinaldi brings a very realistic approach to modeling, while Martin Kovac or Adam Wilder push the bounds of artistic interpretation for finishing, which I love. I'd also like to note that style is not only limited to the, to the model's finish, but also construction as well. You can see this where modelers go you know, a mile deep into scratch building and love to incorporate unique features in their build, such as hyper-detailing or adding specific types of damage. Again, you can look at Martin's style for that and some of the uniqueness he brings in telling that story. With this in mind, I'd love to have a discussion around our own styles and, and explore how we've evolved over time, where we are today, and, and where you want to go in the future and what influences you. So with that, you know, maybe I could kick it over to TJ. And So this is a, this is a pretty interesting topic um, because I'm kind of like two minds about it. I, I don't feel like I personally have a style, which is kind of preposterous because everyone really does, whether you feel like you do or not. I, I don't know. I, I try to, as corny as it sounds, I try to bridge the gap between taking an artistic approach to it and taking a realistic approach to it. And I really, I think I should maybe figure out which one I want to do and try to get better at that one instead of trying to do both. You know, I'm influenced by the three names that you just mentioned and, you know, Mike Rinaldi, Martin Kovac, Adam Wilder, and actually you, John, Um, I think I told you that in our, the first episode when you were on, you, you, or one of my personal you know, hobby heroes or whatever you want to call it, someone I look up to and, and have learned a lot from seeing your, how you build models and finish them. And well, thanks, I man. You, I didn't pay well, you to say that either. <laughs> I know you did, but it's the truth. <laughs> the absolute truth. Making me blush. Um. So, yeah, I don't know. You know, I, and of course, you know, I like to, obviously I'm not in the same, the same, uh, I don't even think I'm playing the same sport as some of these people. So I'm definitely not even in the same, <laughs> the same ballpark, but I, I tend to, pref- I, it's weird. I used to be very much into, I, I appreciated realism. And now I've, I've kind of leaning a little more towards the artistic approach. And I think that has a lot to do with, you know, reading more uh, uh, books and different modeling books that I think you've, turned me on to quite a few john and then also watching martin kovac you know watching night shift um scale models on youtube like and seeing martin's you know style not necessarily change but almost like refine like if you look at his first video which is i think's the soviet ball tank he does a lot of the same stuff now but he's doing it even better and and he was already doing it better than most other people could to begin with. So the fact that it's gotten better and and you've seen him, he's still doing brush chipping and, and all this other stuff that, you know, he was doing in his early videos, but now he's just doing it, you know, turned up to 11 and just seeing that. And I'm like, well, you know, that has me wanting to do it. Right. Like on, like on my T 34, I'm working on, I'm doing brush chipping, which I don't do. I'm a hairspray guy. And, 
a chipping fluid guy and always have been because the first modeling book I ever bought was Tank Art Volume 2, which is actually sitting right here next to me. It's always by my bench. So, yeah, that's I don't know. You know, so I don't know, really know what my style is. I I don't think and I'm sure Scott's going to get mad because he I think he probably disagrees. I don't, I don't think most people could pick out something I did because, A, I'm not that well known, which is fine. And I just don't think it looks a certain way. We, we've talked about it like um, Andy Moore, who we've who we've talked about before. You can you can pick an Andy Moore model out of a line of models of equally well done models. And Adam Wilder is the same way. Like you can you can show me a hundred tank models and tell me one of those is is Adam Wilder's, and I guarantee you I could find the one because you know, like an Adam Wilder model when you see one, right? Like it's, it's impossible. I think, I, I mean, I think that's an interesting point, TJ, because I think as somebody who is a fan of your work and, and I'd say the same thing for Doug and for John, um, I can definitely see a style, but going back to John's original question and maybe bounce it back to you for a second, TJ, I've definitely seen your style evolve. You know, when you and I first started, the the majority of your subjects, at least the ones that you were publishing online, were like Bandai Star Wars subjects and your science fiction models, I think, look a little different than your than your wargaming minis or your armor pieces. But um, I, I, I guess, how do you feel like your style has evolved? Because I think it is evolving and changing. Oh, thank you. Um, you know, I don't really know. It, it... It's also interesting that you brought up my my wargaming miniatures because I've I've mentioned that on the on the podcast too. Like my my Warhammer forty thousand stuff looks nothing like my armor models or even my science fiction models like at all. I'd almost say they don't even look like they were painted by the same person. Nothing, almost nothing I do for Warhammer is is weathered. Some of the vehicles I'll like do some sponge chipping on it just to. Because you know it's a big tank, so it's got to have something, right? But like uh, most of the, the the character models, I do a very that I think has a more distinct look than say like one of my Shermans, because I know I've I know people have told me or they've seen some of my work that I post online. Like I've seen that before. Like oh, I could tell that was it was yours. I saw it on a website somewhere that didn't have like my my name on it, and then they see it on Facebook. Oh, I knew that was yours. I I, I could tell. So. Yeah, like my like my Raptor Space Marines have they all look the same for the most part. Even though I've adjusted how I paint them as as I've gone on, but those definitely have a look and they all look like that. And I actually really like the way they turned out. Um I just don't think necessarily that like my armor is really there yet. It may not, I, who knows. Um But yeah, as far as like yeah, my style, I've I've definitely tried to go the more artistic way and incorporating a lot of things that like, you know, Martin's doing and that, that John's done. Like John taught me how to do the chipping fluid and, and, um, enamel, you know, weathering look, which I, I first did on, um, the Sherman I did earlier this year. And like, man, that's a, like a spot on approach. I mean, it's awesome. So, I'm kind of incorporating that into it more, more so now than obviously than never doing it before. 
Yeah, it's interesting, you know, that you mentioned that. I think I think the thing I, I would agree in general, maybe that your minis don't look like your armor, except for I think your attention to detail. I think I've mentioned a couple times on here. One of the reasons I love Tamiya kits is because the quality of the plastic in the box is always consistent. And it's something that most people take for granted. And when I see one of your miniatures that you paint, or when I see one of your tanks, one thing I always appreciate is the fidelity of, of your paint finish work, whether it's brush painted or whether it's airbrushing. The, the way that you apply the color to the subject has a really good overall consistent finish. And it's something that I really, really relate to. And, and I guess more accurately, I would say aspire to. As far as answering John's question, you know, all the guys we talked about, of course, are, are huge influences on me. But all of you guys have really inspired me in your own ways. You know, John, since we've gotten to know you a little bit better and everything, it's 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 amazing uh, the fidelity of the finishes and the amount of layering that you can do and that you get done in such an efficient manner. Um, a, a, one thing I want to point to right now that kind of shows that is um, the in-process pics you've been posting on your U9 and the level of finish that you brought to a subject that's outside of your comfort zone, but yet you just kind of naturally just kind of, you, you know, you're applying those layers, those shadows, those highlights, those, um, you know, levels of diffusion, and, and it's really natural. And it's something that, you know, I'm definitely being inspired by whether I can kind of incorporate it or not is maybe another story. And as far as maybe where I want to get to eventually, Doug um, inspired me early on in my modeling career. He was the first guy I ever knew that had an Iwata airbrush. And, uh, you know, I'd always used really cheap, crappy ones. And, uh, you know, after I met him, I got a better airbrush and, and that really made a huge difference in my modeling. But I really want to, in my own modeling, uh, kind of do what Martin's doing in his videos and incorporate more of the weathering layers via airbrush, um, both for efficiency, but also because I just personally like the way that looks and maybe try to get away from some of the paintbrush methods for, you know, distressing and shadows and highlights and maybe try to do more of that um, with my airbrush. So anyway, Doug, Doug, what what about you? Well, I'm going to talk a little bit about some of the things you mentioned, um, but I'll start with, I don't sweat little things, um, especially little details you can't see. Um, I've seen some beautifully modeled and painted um, rudder pedals on airplanes that you'll never, ever see. Unless you've got like a tiny dental mirror to stick underneath there with a pen light, you're never going to see them. So, I mean, I'll paint them and I'll put them in and I'll know they're there, but I'm not going to spend a long time on that kind of detail. It's just not important to me. Nothing against the people that do. I mean, it's your model and and have fun. You know what's in there. So, so great. And the other thing is, as far as my style goes, and it's still developing, is I'll do anything with an airbrush. Like, that's my that's my tool of choice. I have um, taped off and airbrushed a panel as small as like a quarter inch square to airbrush it rather than hand painting it because... I feel like it it is that much better looking when you hand paint over airbrushing. I think I can see a difference even on a little tiny panel. You can see a difference. And if you want a textural difference, wonderful, but I don't, I want, I want that consistency. So I'll use an airbrush for just about anything. 
that's that's kind of my style. I mean, I'm not I'm not too picky right now, and and I'm still uh, evolving as a modeler quite a bit. And uh, but give me an airbrush any day. Well, John, throwing your own question back to you. I mean, tell us uh, what your answers to those questions would be. Yeah, you know, I, I just want to hit on what Doug mentioned there about you know, modelers, you know, painting the inside of things. And, and, you know, it's not, some of us love to do it. Some of us don't. And, and it's funny, Spencer Pollard brings that up, spoiler alert, in the interview as well. So that, that was a really interesting takeaway there, Doug. And, and I completely support that as well. When, in terms of style, I think my style's evolving almost on every build. Uh, in fact, I know it is. You know, I think I pick certain themes from modelers I truly admire, I can point back to when I first got into serious armor modeling again and, you know, the 2012, 13 timeframe, that was right when uh, Tank Art 1 came out. I remember going and pre-ordering it when I was on a trip in, in Colorado. I, just, I For some reason, I still remember like pushing the purchase button uh, way back then, but that book influenced me so much and really set the stage for my style. And I tried to emulate a lot what Rinaldi has done. Now, since that time, I, I think I've evolved in a sense where I am a sucker for modeling publications. I admire everyone's work. I love to support them. And, and that includes the likes of Adam Wilder, Mig Jimenez, you know, Martin, the list goes on and on and on. And I think when, when I look and read those articles, I take pieces of that. So, for instance, you know, TJ mentioned before about shipping fluid in enamel and in a combination that would not necessarily, you would think, work right away. But seeing Mick Jimenez perfected in his Armor Encyclopedia series, you know, it's like, okay, I'm going to take this tidbit from him. From Adam Wilder, I take, I think Adam Wilder is probably one of the best modelers when it comes to understanding tonal um, variations and, and working on a color wheel, understanding, you know, how to use saturation and hues to your advantage. And that is something that I try to, you know, take that piece from him. Uh, one model that I'm working on now, the VK, is an example where I'm trying to replicate and, and to be quite frank, copy his, his work. And I use it kind of as a benchmark to understand what he's doing. And then my next model will be, okay, this is what I did to get to kind of where he is because I'm never going to be Adam Wilder, but I'm going to try to get close to it or, or go towards it. And then the next model I build is I'm going to take pieces of that and, and, and employ it in a little bit different way. And, and maybe that's it's something that I'm just starting to realize now is you can see some of my models do replicate certain people's styles very closely. And then my next model will be a divergence from that where it's taking a piece of it. You know, our guest Spencer Pollard, I've mentioned him a lot. One of the techniques that I've picked up from him that has influenced my style is that he loves to highlight certain details. And, and for instance, he built a Panther D that stuck out to me. And specifically on the engine deck, he picks out the bolts with brighter shades of Dunkelgeld. And I love the effect. Is it realistic? No, at least in my mind. But man, it looks good. And it's highlighting details that would normally be missed on such a complex structure. You look at the back engine deck of an of a armored vehicle, it's got you know the hatches, the chipping, the intakes, um, spilled, you know, stains, exhaust, all these things. And, you know, finer details kind of blend away, especially if you add a tritonal camouflage scheme. So that's another piece I'm trying to take away from him that has influenced my style. And, and really, I guess what I'm trying to say is 
my style is an amalgamation of many others. And, and hopefully as I'm going through this journey of evolution, I start to kind of, you know, define my own way of building a model or, or finishing it for that matter. And, and I, and I really do get motivated. Um, and, and I'm quite frankly, really stunned when people um, say, you know, you know, TJ, I'm still flattered by those comments and it's, you know, it, it, it keeps, uh, how can I say this too? It, it, it holds my, you know, finishing and style to a very high standard. You know, I, I truly try to finish something that I, I want people to be inspired by it. Uh, you know, I, I not only build it for my shelf, but I, I love sharing work and I love getting feedback on that work to, to grow my style. And I guess the, the bottom line for me is it's evolving. I take pieces from everyone. Um, you know, it's not just, I would say the Titans of the hobby, but also other works I see on social media. And that's one benefit of social media. It's, you know, I look at TJ's work as ISVU 152. I'm seeing some of the work he's doing with the airbrush, um, you know, the, the, the dirt and the grime that he has on the suspension and just the overall look of the vehicle I really like. And it's like, okay, how can I, how can I take what he's doing and, and apply it to my models? And, Scott, you know, your TIE Fighter is another example where I will certainly have those pictures up when I'm building mine to influence the finishing style. Um, so at the end of the day, I don't have a really great answer. I'm kind of all over the place, um, but I, I certainly lean on others to help me define where I am. Guys, that was a, a great discussion. John, uh, thanks for bringing that up. It's pretty interesting to hear everybody's perspective on that. Um, let's go over some news and notes uh, here. So first of all, uh, we haven't talked for a couple of weeks. Uh, TJ, what have you been working on? I have mainly been working on my rifle model T3485 for our group build. I'm catching up on you fast, Scott. I'm probably going to pass you. I might even lap you. I, I know I mentioned it briefly. I, I've been doing the, the painted on uh, chipping following um martin kovacs style it, I, it was the first layer was sponge and then i went back i'm going going back because it's taking forever um going back and, and doing the the dark steel with a brush um i painted the markings on the turret by hand which i've never done before it turned out really good i really liked it yeah it looks great looks awesome and other than that i know i had talked about like tyranids as another warhammer forty thousand army um, I actually have Death Guard as another army that I'm probably going to start. Actually, I have already started now. So that's the other thing I've been kind of poking on when I'm not uh, in the mood to do brush chipping. I've been building some Death Guard, which are bulbous, disgusting, plague-ridden space marines. And they're gross and awesome. So that's what I got. To play with your alien bug monsters? Yeah, so, I mean, I still have all those guys. Um, I, I got some sitting right here. The Death Guard have a new book, because I also I, I play the game, too. So they have a new Codex book with, like, new rules and everything. So that just came out, like, a month ago. So I finally got it, and they got all the new hotness. So I got to go with them for now. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing some of those new guys for sure. I've been working on my uh, T3485. Haven't made a ton of progress, but I've got uh, most of the lower hole, all the uh, pigments and the weathering on the lower hole finished. And then I also got my frial tracks uh, blackened and the first couple of uh, rust washes applied on that. Hopefully soon that's going to get off of my bench, but TJ, like he said, will probably smoke me on that. I also picked up a 
resin conversion for an aircraft, which for me is a little unusual. I have a 148 scale Hasegawa TA4J scooter. I really like Skyhawks like Doug, but the TA4J doesn't have the avionics hump, and I'm a huge fan of the OA4M, which um, is a two-seater, but it does have the avionics hump. So I, I found a company that makes a resin conversion, so I'm looking forward to doing that. And then, like I said, bringing that T3485 home uh, one of these days here. So, John, what what about you? What have you been working on recently? Two major projects nearing the finish line. The first is the U9 that keeps getting mentioned. I hopefully will have that done by the time this episode drops. And then I also have another large project that's consumed me. It's a destroyed Abrams. It's been pretty secret for a while. I think I can talk about it now. Um, it'll be published soon. But, you know, what's challenged me is is the ash on it. And I actually burned some cardboard in my grill in my front driveway. And neighbors probably thought I was crazy just burning things in a grill. But I collected the ash. I put some foil down before I did that. So I collected the ash and I've been using it to replicate the burned out tires and, and burned effects on the vehicle. So I, I kind of like how it's going. Uh, it should be close. I have a figure with it as well that's painted. And then after that, it's turning my attention to a couple slammer builds. And then more importantly, you know, a project that I'll hopefully have done for nationals and it'll be another father son build. Uh, my light dad's birthday was just this past week. Um, I post online the KV2 that I built for him in honor of, uh, you know, his memory. And I have another kit, an SDK I've said 250, which is a stumble half track that I hope to, you know, build and have on display at nationals that he started and unfortunately couldn't finish. So. That's on my bench. That tribute you uh, made to your dad, I shared that to our page, but um, really beautiful tribute, John, and the model was really beautiful oh, as well. Doug, uh, what has been occupying your time on uh, your on your new shiny uh, spiffy model bench there? Well, there's still clutter in there. I'm not totally organized, but I've been working on that little X-Wing, the 72nd scale Bandai X-Wing. It's been fun. Had a few uh, setbacks with it. I think I had something on my fingers when I handled one of the wings because I taped off a few spots and painted and it lifted on just one spot on one wing. The paint was lifted all the way down to the uh, the primer. So that was a bit of a bummer. And so that one's kind of on hold. I'm waiting for, for airbrush parts, which I can talk about in a little while. And uh, while I think that your, you know, your guys's projects all sound neat and stuff, I started the Bandai Perfect Grade Millennium Falcon this week. So that 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 kind of trumps it all except i mean the father son thing i can't i can't beat that but but oh my gosh it is i i opened the box and i said this may be the most intimidating thing i've ever seen in my life just as far as modeling goes i, I mean there are 35 sprues in there and i i, I would, it was kind of rough the first thing it says you know i needed sprue d and of course the last sprue i picked up was d i was going through everyone one after another after another so I'm figure I've got an organization uh, system I'm going to build so that I can alphabetize the sprues because I can't find anything fast enough to make it worth my while. It's so typical Bandai. All these little tiny pieces you start popping them in and they fit perfectly. I'm I'm really excited. It's just going to be time more than anything, time and patience, and just keep plugging away. It's it's a beautiful kit and it's going to be a lot of fun. Nice. John, I think you had a couple of uh, news items you wanted to discuss. Yeah, I just wanted to quickly give a shout out to IPMS Roscoe Turner in Indianapolis, Indiana. They'll be hosting their 2021 show on this upcoming Saturday, April 17th. It's at the fairgrounds, and I'm really bummed I can't go. 
Uh, I'll be on a work trip, which really makes me mad because I haven't traveled for months and it's scheduled over the weekend of the first model show I can attend. So, but I hope, uh, you know, we have some friends of the podcast will be attending and I, I really look forward to the photographs uh, from the show. The other news item, I just wanted to give a quick uh, update. I did see on Facebook that Squadron is up for auction. So if you want a load of Hobby Boss kits that no one else wanted, <laughs> or items to, <laughs> or items uh, to have your own, you know, model warehouse shop, you know, feel free to log on, and uh, I'll I'll post the link on our Facebook page. Um, but the auction will close on the twenty fourth. Uh, doesn't look like they have much left. Uh, mainly, what's interesting to me is the trademarks. I thought Squadron did have. Uh, you know, some really great book series. So I'm anxious to see who picks that up and maybe they'll publish them again because I, I think those were of value. I have something I must speak on. Send it. Uh, I mentioned airbrush problems. Um, working on my X-Wing. I have on my spray booth a couple of hooks that I put in so I can hang my airbrush while I'm uh, adjusting things or while I'm waiting to get back to it. Um, if you guys use any kind of system like that, make sure that you put the airbrush correctly on the hooks because I didn't. <laughs> and I was using my SOTAR. I actually have two SOTARs. And so this was the second one. The first one was already out of commission because I screwed up the uh, air valve assembly. So I put it on the hook, only I missed one of the hooks and it it did a nosedive, bent the nozzle, bent the needle, bent the uh, mm. bent, bent a couple other parts. That's my go-to brush for any fine detail work. So I've I've kind of backed off a little bit. But be careful with your brush, guys. Thank goodness for the internet because this week I should have replacement parts and both the Sotars should be running again. But dang, just, uh, I felt, what a moron. I didn't even look. I'm so, so confident in my own ability to put this thing on the hooks that I didn't even look. <laughs> and I felt it grab the hook and I felt it grab one hook and not two and off it went. That story literally makes my eyes yeah. water. <laughs> my heart hurts know, for you. I am glad I am who I am because at 50, almost 51 years old, it happened and I went, oh, you know, 20 years ago, I'd have probably woken my wife up with the swearing and the yelling and the, cur you know, so, so, you know, I'm a little more mature these days. Wow. How's that going for you? Because I don't think I. <laughs> I said I a little more. <laughs> Anyway, that's all I've got about my sorry airbrush story. Uh, JB, is it about time for our interview, isn't it? It is. Thanks for that, Doug. So, uh, you know, this episode we have Spencer Pollard. So sit back, relax, and enjoy. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, everyone. We have a very special guest, a guest that I have certainly admired a long time in my modeling career. We would like to welcome Spencer Pollard to the podcast. Hello. How are you? Um, thanks very much for inviting me along. I'm much appreciated. Thank you. Welcome, Spencer. It's great to talk to you. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's really, really great to talk to you. And, you know, before we kick into it, you know, for our listeners who may not uh, know who you are. I, the list goes on and on, I, you know, author, modeler, blogger, everything and anything to deal with, you know, scale modeling. When it comes to subject matter expertise, I think you, you 
tick the box for master class in, in nearly everything from sci-fi, armor, aircraft, and figure modeling, and then your dioramas as well. So I certainly can't wait to delve into some of the topics we have lined up today and get to know you more as a modeler and, you know, really what makes you tick and motivated towards, you know, executing on projects. And, and hopefully we learned something we, we never knew before today. So if, if that sounds good, we'll get right into it. Yeah, that sounds great. Not sure I'm, I'm slightly <laughs> concerned that I've been built up a little bit more than I, <laughs> I perhaps deserve, but we'll, yeah, we'll go with, uh, yeah, see, see, what, see what we come up with. No, it's, that's great. Well, John, before we get started on his background, I, I just got to ask you, Spencer, that Airfix Lancaster that you just finished, oh my gosh, that's lovely. And I know a lot of people out there sort of, I think in, in many cases unfairly, say that Airfix kits just aren't that great. They don't give you a good result, but I, yeah, I'd point them to your Lancaster that you just finished. Can you talk to us about how that was to build and kind of your approach on it? Because I'm just a huge fan of that model. The, the the Lancaster. The, the first things first, really. It's first time in forty five years of building models that that I've I've built a Lancaster. I, I've never built um, a four engined RAF bomber before at all. Um, it's sort of a, I'm not avoided them, but I just haven't got around to it. Really, it's not an area that's particularly interested me. But I should be kind of honest to begin with in in that the Lancaster was built because I stuffed up the previous model. And I was kind of deadlined, and I had a bit of a hole that I'd promised that I would fill. So, so the Lancaster kind of, kind of came up, and I um, decided that it was sort of sat there, and I thought, right, now's the time to, to put this thing together. I, I, I had a rather abridged period to build it in. I only had a week to put this thing together, um, from, from almost from door to door, um, which is very short for, for a model of that complexity. The Airfix Lancaster in itself is not a bad kit. It, it's hamstrung by by certain issues that I that I've discussed kind of openly, and I'll, I will discuss in in the, the, the review that I did. The plastic pro- is a problem in in some Airfix kits, not all of them, in some of them. And the Lancaster was 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 sort of fell foul of that really. So there were issues in terms of fit and tolerance. But overall, it's it's super accurate as a model. One of the things that Airfix do almost better than anybody else, certainly when it comes to RAF subjects or British subjects, is their accuracy is almost spot on. It's, it, they zero in on everything, the nuances of shape, the nuances of the detail, particular, particular areas when it comes to, to specific marks and specific features of those marks. They, they have very good researchers within, within their, um, within their organization. So in terms of a replica, an actual finished model of a Lancaster B2, it really is spot on. It is kind of typical of, of current Airfix kits. It's it's not it's nicely molded and surface detail is nice and sharp. It's 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 a nice model to put together. But there were issues definitely with the fit and fixtures when it came to to putting that together. However, despite that, I did enjoy the challenge of putting it together. A lot of the models that we build these days tend to be kind of shake and bake. You pick you pick open the box, you just Put tell the instructions out, glue the thing together, and jobs you know jobs done. Sometimes I like to push myself a little bit more, and I like the idea of creating something that's a little bit more involved, shall we say? And you can't really get much more involved than a World War Two four engine bomber because there's so many moving parts on it. Um, everything has to be done for time. You, you know, you've got four radial engines, four propellers, four nacelles, four sets of exhausts, all of those kind of things, all of which have to be painted. The nacelles on a on a Lancaster B two, like on a Sterling or a Halifax. They're, they're also black with camouflage on them. Then they have the collector ring, all of which need to be masked. All of those colors need to be masked off. 
So you've got a lot of work there to do. But I also wanted to, to see whether I can pu- could push the finish. Second World War British bombers um, were very specific in terms of finish. Originally painted in night, which was a dead flat colour, dead flat black, and it picked up dirt it almost instantaneously and didn't clean. So they were filthy from start to finish. But also um, there's the challenge of the camouflage. There's the challenge of the canopies. There's the challenge of all of those kind of things and bringing all of those together. Now, one of the things that, that I'm very specific about, and we can touch on this later if you want to ask me more about this, but I'm very specific about it, is I don't really like the idea of building models. And I'll expand on that. Everything I build, I try and build a replica of a particular type, of a particular subject. I'm not really interested in the idea of building something that only to me looks like a model. And it's one of the reasons why my finishes tend to be a little bit less arty, for want of a a much better phrase, and and, and something that I hope is not dismissive of people that go down that route. So they tend to be kind of sombre and a bit bit kind of bleak in the way that they look in comparison to other people's. So that's what I wanted to try and do. So that's where the challenge was with this model. Could I make it look as filthy as a Lancaster V2 that had been in service for a couple of months during the Second World War? And they were literally hanging these models. They were terrible. These aircraft, they were terrible. Even after only a few weeks of use, they, they were filthy. Everything leaked on them. The surface finish was, was, was really degraded. So that's where that was my mindset right from the bat, really. Also, I thought, am I going to build another Lancaster? Possibly not, is the, is the answer to that. I know if I'm going to build more than one thing. Tamir F-14 Tomcats, a good example. I built three of those. Um, F-16s, I've built multiples of those. FW-190s, Mustangs, Spitfires, built multiples of those. But was I ever going to build another Lancaster? The only, the only possibility is that I'll, I'll maybe have a go at the, the Hong Kong models for the eight-scale kit when that arrives. So I wanted to make sure that I did a good job on it and, and that it, it looked the way I, I envisaged it. And it seems like I, I, I kind of hit, hit the mark um, with it. It's not perfect. And like you mentioned, I think it's really, really hard on an aircraft, you know, with colors like dark earth and, and flat black. It's really hard to make those look realistically dirty and, and without taking some kind of an artistic approach. Yeah, the, the problem with matte black is that matte black isn't really matte black, um, any kind of black aircraft. Uh, I used an example the other night when I was chatting about this. The, the best example I can think of is the TR1. If you look at a TR1 and you look at it in uh, on the ground, when you can sort of take a close look at it, it's it's not black, although it is black. It's multiple layers of, of different um, colours, greys, browns almost, blacks, you know, and then you get all the dirt and the staining and all of that kind of thing. And that's where the challenge is with something like that. In a similar way, years ago, the challenge for me was to nail natural metal. With this one, it was to try and get that black finish and also to get the markings on, to get the decals in place on a black finish. Anybody that's tried to do that, it can be problematic because you're you're having to sort of seal those decals in against that black finish with matte varnish. And matte varnish, by its very nature, blooms slightly. It creates a slight frosting. And so black is not is not the best surface to put matte varnish onto, flat varnish onto, um, because you will get that kind of very slight frosting. So what that meant was that once the decals were in place and I was working around it, then I remarbled it. I use this um, this phrase on, on the model. I think I, anybody, if, if anybody sort of follows my Facebook page, I, will, I, I mentioned this, using marbling on this. 
And that's those texture templates that, that, that I've been using for the last three or four years since the, the F14 Tomcat that I, that I built. And I've sort of expanded on and I've used them a lot over the, over the, over the, um, the last sort of few years. The, the biggest example being the 24 scale Hellcat that I did in, in, the, um, in, the, in the US sort of post-war US Navy markings with the yellow wings and the gray fuselage. So that, that had that kind of marbling on. And that was how I tried to create it. And it gave me a, a, a sort of a good stepping stone to do something else. Black. I've, I've, I'm, I'm planning to do um, the, the Airfix Defiant. I've got, I've got one of those. And I want to do a night fighter. And that will obviously be overall black. And at some point, I'd perhaps like to do a Mosquito as well and, and, and have a crack at that and see how that looks. But it's a challenge. They are challenges. They, they are. And sometimes it's good to push myself a little bit and sort of see how, how, how it will look. And, and that was the result, really, that, that Lancaster came out of the way. It's a bit of an evolution then, really, as far as um, you are pushing yourself in, in a direction with this Lancaster. But you're already obviously building off the foundation of what you've done here in planning other projects. So it's, you're modeling like all of us, hopefully, is continuing to evolve. It is. It, it is. But only within that genre, within um, that sort of arena. It, if I can explain what I mean by that, I, I, I don't see myself as having a particular style. And the reason why I don't see myself having a, a particular style is because I like to hop around styles whenever I feel the, feel the need. And a, a bit like I play drums um, And and the best analogy I can give you is I see myself almost like a session musician that gets that gets called in to do a session. I'm not professional drummer by any stretch of imagination. Weekend warrior at best, Um, but but it's a similar kind of idea. So you could get called in to play blues. You could get called in to play funk and soul. Get called in to play rock music or or pop music. All those kind of things. Now they're all distinct and different styles that have a similar foundation. For in terms of drumming, they have the same sort of time signatures and all that, but they are different styles. And that's what I like to do. I like to hop styles. And then that keeps it fresh for me. So I could build a model. I don't know if you've seen my Tiger Moth, the, the, the two Tiger Moths that I've done recently. Those two Tiger Moths were very much a clean style. They had that kind of cleanliness to them. They were sharp. They were like building cars. And then I go on to the Lancaster. Then that's got a different style. doesn't look like it's been painted by me. Then I would perhaps paint, I'm building a Lotus car at the moment. So I can, I can kind of hop around those kind of things. And I find that, that, A, it keeps it fresh for me, but it also gives me an innate understanding of how other modelers approach their work. So if I only painted in a particular style and I, I translated that style from ev- through every single model I built, I would only understand those styles for for me, but to allow me to sort of visualize other other work and see what other people can do, I like to be able to sort of learn and ape other styles that that I can. And I've I've done that throughout my certainly throughout my adult life of building models, but also through my professional life, I've never stuck to one style. I've always tried to sort of create things and, and be able to 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 sort of just shake things up a little bit. So if I wanted to build a model in Spanish style, for instance, I would simply do that. I would, I would do all that accentuation that they do and all of the dark panel lines, um, all of the, the highlighting, the shading and everything. And then 
that's one that's one kind of thing. If I wanted to do it in that sort of Northern European style, which is much more sombre and much more, uh, I would do that. Also, it allows me to work through building models that are weathered and building models that aren't. A lot of people can't see past that. I, I've got friends who, who, who can't conceive of building a model that's clean, but I like the idea of being able to do that, and that gives me sort of the opportunity to, to go from building a, you know, a weathered jet to building a car and being able to sort of, sort of do both, really. And that's, that's kind of where the, where the whole sort of mindset. So although it is an evolution, it's an evolution within, within part of my brain. It's not an evolution within the whole package of, of my approach to the hobby. It's just a piece of, of it within that. You know, it's my, my, my sort of drumming brain going out there learning how to play blues. It, it's just part and parcel of that, that sort of evolution. Really. You, you mentioned your Tiger Moth kits, and you've recently done an Airfix 148 scale and, I, and an ICM 132nd scale. They're both very, very striking, very beautiful. Could you talk about those two builds and your approach to finishing those, how you like the kits, et cetera? Yeah, um, the ICM one first. The ICM um, kit was it came as a, a, after a conversation I had with Brett Green. I was chatting away to him. We were talking about possible possible sort of ideas of things I could build for him. I sort of said, "Oh, this ICM kit's come out. I quite fancy. I like the Tiger Moth. Never built one. Quite like the idea of, of building one." That build came came from that that little jump off point of, of, of chatting to, to Brett. But it was also um, the result of me being absolutely adamant that i wanted to build a model that nobody else had this is it, it kind of catches me out occasionally but i i don't really i like to have something that only one percent of people have got rather than 99 percent of people have got it's one of the reasons why i've never built a sundowners f4 phantom or a jolly rogers f14 tomcat because they're popular and, and I, I like to have something that's slightly off the off the wall from that so that color scheme that that's in is a is an aircraft that flies around the UK. It's a civilian aircraft. G A N E M is the is the scheme. And anybody that's not seen it, it's basically a yellow tiger moth with silver wings and black lettering on it. It's beautiful, and it's got um, it's got a wooden propeller and a silver tail. It's, it really is a pretty aeroplane. And so I wanted to sort of recreate that, and I, I liked the challenge of the glossy yellow fuselage. No, the satin yellow fuselage, the high gloss metal cowlings and then the satin metal kind of painted fabric so it was also an experiment in patina patina is kind of important to to what i do in that i used shifts around the model i used satin matte gloss and everything to to differentiate different surfaces on, on that i don't really like building models that are coated in the same level of sheen it kind of kills it for me i, I, I like to have those sort of differences now the icm kit is a very nice kit actually in terms of a basic tiger moth it's not very well detailed though and the cockpit inside that is is not that much better than the matchbox one from 1978 or whenever that that 30 second scale kit was released so so what i did was i approached it from the point of view of how far could i push the detail so i scratch built all the cockpit scratch built all the, all the, all of the framework did everything in there converted it into a modern aircraft as well so it's got all the modern radio fittings and, and all of that all of the cabling all of the socket plugs for for the headsets and and did all of that. So and then my good friend Jonathan Mark, he is the decal designer for Airfix 
and he cut silhouette cuts. I, I sent him the, the, some photos and he cut all the markings for me. So I sprayed all the markings and it went together really nicely. Problem with the ICM kit as well is it's incredibly fragile. It's made, it's almost, anybody that's seen the kit, it's molded and detailed almost to a point of absolute accuracy. So so the, the interplane struts and the caban struts are almost prototypically the same size as they should be, which makes it incredibly fragile. Now, when you're rigging it, you've got all sorts of rigging points and those kind of things. The other thing I did on it as well was that I made the mistake of not following the instructions, which I appreciate for a lot of people. It's almost part of the game. You don't follow the instructions. That's just a coward's way out. You, but in this case, I didn't take my own. I, I sort of went against the grain. And what, what I did then was that I ended up with the upper wings, the dihedral of the upper wing was slightly off. So when I came to drop it onto the top of the caban struts and then trap the two, the interplane struts between the, the two main planes, it was out by about two mil, three mil. It was so fragile that I thought, well, if I squeeze that and super glue it into place, at some point that is just going to shatter. I, I'm going to come into my, my studio and find that I've got bits of tiger moth <laughs> everywhere after this thing has just exploded into a million pieces. <laughs> So I, I then had a fully painted and fully finished upper wing. It was <laughs> looking really nice. And I ended up having to break it. I had to crack it bet- um, either side of the fuel tank that sits on top of the caban struts. You can imagine how much I was sweating at that point, thinking I'm going to have to repaint this again because it, it had got all sorts of shades on it and, and whatnot. Fortunately, it kind of went together. And, and I'm looking at it now, and it's been completed for about four or five weeks. And so far, it hasn't pinged away. So yeah, it's a lovely little kit. It is a lovely kit. And, and it looks, it's almost perfect in terms of its stance and the way that ICM have captured it beautifully. It looks great. The other thing that ICM have done as well that goes with it is they're just about to release a set of World War II trainee pilots that go with it, a set of four figures. And they'll look really good, I think. And you'll be able to do like a vignette around it and all that sort of stuff. The Airfix one was a kit that I'd, I'd had sort of up in the loft for, for uh, about 12 months, I think. And I decided I was going to do a book on the Tiger Moth. I thought I quite, you know, nobody's in a book on Tiger Moth. It's kind of an interesting airplane. There's lots of color schemes. It's pretty. I, I might do a book on it. I thought, well, why don't I build the Airfix one? Now, the Airfix one is sensational from start to finish. It's a superb kit. It's beautifully detailed. It's got lots of features within it. Cockpit's really nice. It's super accurate as well. It's a really delightful package that you can put together. But as usual, I couldn't leave well. I couldn't leave alone. And so I ended up adding detail to it as well, added detail to the engine and all that sort of stuff. Although I was tempted by the colour schemes in the kit, which is which is a privately owned aircraft based on a World War II training squadron um, Tiger Moth. I thought, well, I'll do something else. And I came across a photograph of of a Royal Navy one that was essentially in REF colours. So that's overall doped aluminium and then yellow stripes on it. But it had got the, the Navy, because they obviously didn't think that was bright enough, they then slapped Dayglow all over it so that it was just like, I mean, I'm looking at it now. You could see it in the dark. It is so bright, this thing. But every time my wife comes into my, into my studio, she kind of like looks at it in shocked because I'm sure that it's actually luminescing more as, as the sun is coming outside. It is getting brighter and brighter this morning. So I, I thought, that, that's kind of cool. And then I came across a set of decals produced by Model Art. Model Art are a decal company run by a French guy called uh, Jean-Pierre Le Depre. Um, Jean-Pierre lives up in, in the north of England and has lived here for, for years. I'm a good, good friend of mine, really nice guy. And I phoned him up and I said, oh, oh Jean-Pierre, I'm, I'm looking at, um, at building this Royal Navy um, Tiger Moth. I'm, I've tried to order the decals. And he said, oh, 
silly you, as he always says, silly you, I'll send you them. Don't, don't worry, I will send you them over. So I got the sheath, and there I was. And so that's, that's kind of what I did with it. And then I had the, the astonishing challenge. I don't know if either of you have ever tried to paint day glow orange. Dayglow orange is, is literally the most difficult colour in the world to paint. There is nothing that's more, more difficult. And the reason for that is because it's a translucent finish. It's essentially coloured varnish. You have to put it over white. If you don't put it over a, a fully opaque layer of white, you will, it won't, you'll get all sorts of shift in tone. I made the mistake of thinking that I could put it over the silver on the wings. I'd already painted the cowling in and the tail. With what with a white base coat, and I thought I'd put it over the wings. Didn't work at all. So I ended up with a slightly. I ended up with shifts in 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 color. So that was the challenge on that was to get that that day glow looking like day glow, so that it it, it has that kind of lumen sort of luminous property about it. It probably is the last time I will ever spray day glow on on, on anything because it is so complicated. In the end, I used some of uh, mist colors. Um, fluorescent they do a fluorescent orange and a fluorescent red they're really beautiful actually i think the fluorescent red would be suitable for an f4b phantom one of the uh, natc ones it is natc naval air test center jets and i think they were in they were in like day glow orange color they're they're, they're kind of beautiful i think it would be suitable for that they do this orange and do this, this this kind of red color but overall, I really enjoyed that. And it fits together. like It's like a jigsaw puzzle. It fits together. Everything, the way that they've designed it, it kind of clicks together. And, and I, I had a, I had a, I think we, we, can, we can say a slightly heated conversation with somebody who, who, who suggested it wasn't for a beginner, that kit. And, and, and I suggested that, that perhaps it was because it was the way that it had been designed. It's certainly much easier to build than the ICM kit because it's the interplane struts have got are joined at the top so that they, they, you can't angle them. But yeah, very, very interesting pair of models that will be joined at some point within the next few months by the Matchbox kit that I have that I will be building. So I, I'll have a full set then, I'll have the three. So yeah, good project. So And, and recommended if anybody fancies building a biplane. It's a beautiful airplane. Both of those uh, Tiger Moths are beautiful builds as well. And they look quite striking together so it'll be interesting to see what you bring with the matchbox build into that and uh, into a, a book that sounds like that you're working on as well the the the, the matchbox one uh, it, it's not a secret now because i've sort of it will be a float plane rather than a, a stock tiger moth and will probably be in a, a made up a what if color scheme uh, a, a civilian operated color scheme that's not really based on anything in particular uh, but just like the colors and i thought well, if it was my tiger moth, I could paint them in those colors. So that, that's all the road I'm going down. Well, John, I have jumped all over, <laughs> all over this. I just couldn't wait to talk about those those builds. Uh, why don't we go back, start at the beginning there? Yeah, no problem. You know, certainly, Spencer, I, I gave you an introduction, but for you know, for me, I, you know, I'm just curious, and for people that aren't familiar with your work, if you could just expand a little bit about yourself and and maybe tell us, you know, when did you start making models? But maybe more importantly, when did you decide to take that leap into professional model making? I started building models when I was seven or eight years of age, really. I'd seen one kicking around that belonged to my father, and I was kind of fascinated by it. It was a, an Airfix Seeking, the one that's the number six, the six famous 66 um, aircraft. It, it, was, it was sort of in the house, and I think I played with the box for a while. And I liked the idea of putting this thing together. I never did, 
And then I was I, I decided that I was going to buy a kit. And the first one I ever remember buying was the Airfix Harrier, the sort of first generation GR1 that, that they created and, and released at the start of the 70s, 70 seconds gun kit. I think that was the first one I built. I stuck it together with tube glue and, and stuck it to my fingers and, and the canopies and all of that sort of, that, that kind of thing, you know, as you, as you do. But for some reason, I was completely hooked on it. It was it was something that I I couldn't shift, and I just became obsessed with building models. And and, and it, I'm 53 now. I say 53. Yeah, I'm 54 this year. 53 now, and I've never had a break from it. I've I've built models continuously through that that, that sort of period. But I've never I, I I've never stuck to a genre. Never stuck to a particular type of model. Never stuck to a particular subject. Never stuck to a particular scale. It's always been about the model. It's always been about the miniature that's interested me. But the miniature has always been based on a prototype. So I've always liked, I mean, I, I love aircraft. My first love of fast jets always has been and always probably will be. I loved the idea of being able to kind of build models of those aircraft that I like. And then, so I sort of built them all the way through my teenage years and FX kits, built most of the FX kits, built most of the Matchbox kits. And then I left school, joined the civil service for 10 years, hated every single second of it, working in an office, pushing paper around. And the whole time I was doing that, all I was thinking about was, oh, this is what I'm going to build when I get home kind of thing. And then rather arrogantly, in at the start of the 90s, a new magazine had been launched and, and it had been on sale for about a year or something. And I sort of approached the, I approached the editor. I, I'd, I'd, been, I'd studied magazines for years and I'd studied the way that they were written. I was fascinated by the way writers approach their subject. I had subscriptions to Scale Models magazine and Airfix magazine, sort of end of the 70s into the 80s, to the middle of the 80s. And they had brilliant writers working for them. They had Chris Ellis, um, Ray Rimmel, Roger Chesnow, who was Joe Sackey in, in, in the magazine. They had Ian Allen, all of those guys who were, who were absolutely at the top of their field. They were brilliant. And they weren't only brilliant model makers at that point. They were also very proficient writers. They were almost like journalists, trained journalists, who happened to build models. Whereas these days, most magazines are filled with model makers who write. These were writers who built models. And there is a very distinct difference between those two. And I'd spent a long time studying the way that they wrote, the way that they created articles, put, put the words on the page. And I, 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 couldn't, I couldn't get past the idea I wanted to be part of that. It was something that really fascinated me. So when this magazine got launched, I, I sort of I was at national championships at Donington Park. The the then editor of, of that that magazine was there, and I I went up to him and sort of arrogantly said, "I, I like your magazine and everything. I, I I think I can do better than the authors that you kind of got in there." <laughs> it's, it's that sort of it's that kind of preposterous arrogance of youth, isn't it? When I look back on it now, if somebody said that to me. I, I'm not sure whether I think I probably would laugh and then go, well, you crack on, mate. <laughs> you know, let's see what you can what you can come up with. And part of me admires my my much younger self, and part of me thinks, what were you thinking when you when you made that comment? But he he decided to take a take a punt on it, and, and and so then I was pretty much I had to put my you know my money where my mouth was and, and kind of go with that really. And so he he said, right, what I want you to do. Uh, and I've, I've used this before in the, in, in the past. What I want you to do is go away, pick a model, build it, write it, take some photographs and send it in, and I'll have a look. And I thought, this is really easy. Go away and do this. 
Little did I know it wasn't quite as easy as I expected because there's a lot of there's a lot of things within that that you need to take into account. Firstly, I didn't have a camera, so I didn't have any way of taking the photographs. <laughs> I hadn't really that hadn't really occurred to me at the time, <laughs> but I needed to have pictures to go with it. Second one was I didn't have any way of typing it out because I didn't have a type a typewriter. So that was another thing that was a bit of a problem. So so I had the model and I had some like, glue and paint, so I could put this thing together. But I had no way of doing anything else with it. And I wasn't particularly keen on the idea of sending him a handwritten note with, oh, and I glued this together and built this and I put this together and, and da, 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 da. But as it turned out, I, I, I just, I recently got together with, with, with somebody at that point whose mother was a typist, so she could type. And I had a friend who works at the, the land registry where I, where I worked who, who was a pretty proficient photographer. And I think I, I, I suggested in return for considerable amounts of beer that he would take the photographs <laughs> for me. There was no money involved, but but barter, the barter system of, of using beer with your friends has, has, has served me well over the years. Can you do this for me? I'll buy you a pint. Yes, please. That would be a good idea. So that's what we did, and and, and I managed to I managed to coerce these these people into typing and photographing my models until I could afford to to buy a camera and and then. Ian Young, who was the editor at the time, really nice guy. He moved on. He he moved sort of away from that. He spoke to me after I'd been doing it for a couple of years, a couple of three years, and he said, I, "I'm moving on. Um, the editor's position will be open if you if you would like to to kind of apply for it." And I thought, "No, yeah, that sounds good." And I was I was kind of rubbing my hands and thinking, "Yeah, this is great. You know, I can I can do this full time." And so I went for the interview. And, and inter- interesting interview technique. I don't know whether or not the, the, the guys involved in this had, had done this with other people, but they sat me down and they said to me, right, what we want you to do for the next half an hour is we want you to write down exactly what you would like to do to develop this magazine and to push this magazine forward. And they walked out. And so I was sort of sat there in, in, the, um, in, in this room with a pencil and a piece of paper. And I thought, pretty odd interview. So I kind of wrote this down and I wrote pages and pages. Anyway, the guy walked back in and he picked up these these pieces of paper that I just spent half an hour, 45 minutes writing and tore them up in front of me and threw them in the bin. <laughs> I, was, I was sat there and he went, right, now you've written it down, I want you to tell me exactly what you just wrote down. And he made me verbalise my ideas. And that's what got me the job, really. And that's what put me in the position of being able to sort of get involved, get my foot on, on the ladder of, of editing magazines. And, and I, I became the editor of, of Military Inscale magazine, which was, which was my birth for, for 17 years. It was, at, it was kind of at that point then, I, I, I then left the Land Registry, obviously, to become full-time editor. And I remember sitting in, in the middle of my living room on, on the first day I, I was due to do this magazine with no material, with no models built, with no authors in place and only the mere basis of a plan for what I was going to do for the next issue. And I just started to shake. I sat there on the floor shaking and I thought, what on earth have I done? And it made me learn very fast. I mean, real fast how I was going to go about this. So then I was phoning around to friends. I was going, right, we need this. I need this material and all that sort of stuff. But the other thing it made me do as well was it made me build really fast, build and paint and be able to create material i have no time in my working life to to indulge myself in a build that can that takes months or years to do can't do that i, I wouldn't eat my family wouldn't eat if i if i was doing that 
So what it meant was that I had to learn how to put models together to a very high standard very quickly every single time and, and not deviate from that. And that was and that was a really good learning experience for me. I mean, now I'll I'll, I'll kind of if I'm working on something for myself, I, I I may sort of dabble in it. But the other thing it did was somebody said to me when I when I first started, when you sign on the dotted line, you lose your hobby. Your hobby will be is building models. You build it. You, you do it to relax. Once you sign on the dotted line, you do it for a living. You lose your hobby. It's a job then, and you have to approach it in a professional way, and you have to be able to to sort of see past the shiny baubles and and look at what's needed for for that publication and that's what i did and, and, and i learned that very very quickly within the first six months i was turning models out within a week you know that would have taken me months and and i i didn't i never i've never sort of got past that really and now i've i've, I've chatted to friends about this now i can almost time a project to the hour how long it's going to take me uh, and so the Lancaster is a good example of that. I, I'd sort of set myself a week as a target to get that model finished and get it out there. But I overran by, I think, about a day. And the reason for that was I took the weekend off. I overblew the finish and, and, and I decided to have the weekend off and, and spend some time with Elizabeth and, and just sort of for us just to, you know, to relax, watch football, watch films, drink beer, you know, just relax and, and not think about it. And that's, that's, that's what it did, really. And that sort of brought me, brought me through. And it also meant that I couldn't be precious about subjects because it's the needs of the publication. It's not your collection. You're not building for your collection. You're not building because you particularly want to build or like that kit. You're building for the needs of the publication, for the magazine. And over the years, I've built models that I've absolutely hated. And, and I can't put that strongly enough. I've hated every single second of it. But I have to part my ego. I have to part my, my desire to to only do my own thing. And I have to remember that what I'm doing is what readers want to see, not what I want to see. And, and, and often that has meant that once the model's finished, it's gone. I get rid of it. I, I don't keep, I know I have very little, I feel like I have very little emotional connection to, to a lot of what I, what I build. I mean, tiger moths aside, because I love them. But there are certain things where I look at them and I think, mm, not really interested in that. And that's one of the reasons why last year I, RF Cosford Museum, which is just up the road from us, big big museum. They took twenty five of my RF and German collection, uh, and I have no desire to get those back. They'll just be they'll stay in the museum. So it's an interesting thing to get it into and get involved in. And I, I sort of recommend it to people. But I always say I, I would caveat this when people say I would love to build models for a living, and I always say the same thing. Remember, it's a job. It's not your hobby. It's not what you do to pass the time. It's what you do to pay the bills. And you've got to approach it in, in that way. Yeah, that's a, that's a great, you know, really, really good advice. I'd love to expand on a topic that you brought up that's related to your work. And it's about efficiencies and also getting past certain stages of a, of a model that may be considered a stumbling block. As you've mentioned, you have a very tight deadline and you're, you're really fixed on subject matter. Could you just expand maybe on some of the efficiencies that you've learned and maybe what things, how can I say this? What does a modeler, where, where can a modeler find that, you know, that drive to push through an obstacle? Because you've certainly shown it in a lot of your builds where you have a tight deadline. It's, it's a subject matter that you're not necessarily aligned with and maybe a finish that, that you're just exploring. Can you expand on, on what, what, can, what makes you get through to the finish line? 
one of the one of the the most important things for me with this as a job is I don't have shelf queens. I don't have more than one project on the go at, at a time. I only work on one model from start to finish. So I'm not distracted by having anything in my eye line that I think, oh, I quite fancy finishing that. I'll paint that. I never do that. And so so once I'm once I start a project, it's done to completion and then it's photographed. So so that's the first efficiency. I think a lot of I, I see photographs and, and, and mothers are fully entitled to approach it in any way they want. And it certainly isn't my place to to say, no, you shouldn't shouldn't do this. I, I only know what works for me is that I don't do that. I don't keep opening boxes and then working on that and then putting, you know, because I'd never get anything finished. If I was constantly just going, oh, well, I'll build a cockpit on this. I'll, I'll do the weapons on this. I'll do this. I'd never get anything finished. And I would get completely distracted. The other efficiency is anybody that I, I posted some photographs of my, of my new setup in my, my new studio. My, my studio is very pared back. It's, you can sort of see it behind, if you look behind me, you can kind of see it. You know, my books are in here and there's models on display, but I don't have lots of things in my eye line. I don't have paint racks. I don't have any of those kind of things. So I have only what I need in front of me. I don't have anything else. The, other th- the, the next thing is that my workbench and my, my studio is always clean, always. It's never untidy. And at the end of every day, I tidy it. So, and I sweep up. And I clean all the workbench off and everything. So, that, so when I come in here in the, follow, the following morning, it's ready to go. It's you know spotless. Because otherwise, I find that if I lose something, I'm spending time finding it. The, the floor, for instance, is vinyl. It's not carpet. So if anything drops on the floor, I can just sweep the floor and I'll find it. I don't have to sort of worry about those kind of things. So that adds to my levels of efficiency. I don't have you know I, I don't have lots of things that I that I'm sort of looking at and hunting around for. And also my setup in here, I go back to my drumming analogy from earlier, but my setup has been identical for years. It, it hasn't really, it's not everything I know where it is in terms of drawers. So I can pick it out without sort of looking at it um, sort of thing. I could, I, could, I could actually, honestly, in here, blindfold. I could pick up, I know where everything is visually in front of me. So, so that's the second thing. But going into, once I've sort of got past that, going into a build, it's about forward planning. Before I start any model, any project, I have a mental image of how that model will look when it's finished. And I can see it in three dimensions, sat on my cutting mat on my desk, finished, complete. And I never deviate from that, ever. I, I know what colour it's going to be, what colour scheme it's going to be in. I know what weapons I'm going to add on to it. Say, if I'm building aircraft, I know, I know what ordnance I'm going to put on it. I know what markings I'm going to put on it. I know how I'm going to weather it. I know exactly how it's going to look. I don't ever experiment on something. One of the things that the biggest, the, sort of the most important advice I can give anybody who wants to do this, don't experiment against the deadline ever. <laughs> because if you start doing that, you're going to find yourself going, oh, it's not worked. How am I going to sort, sort this, this out? Yeah, you've experimented to a deadline, and that's not the way to do it. Experiment on something else, and then you can maybe use that, you know, two or three times, models down the line, sort of thing. So I never experiment. I always know exactly what I'm what I'm planning to do and how I'm going to go about it. And then what I do is I grab everything together. So within sort of reach of me is is everything that I that I need. So I'm not hunting around for something afterwards. And then I plan the build. I plan what I'm going to do. I plan what I'm going to photograph as well. I'm, I, I look at, at how I'm going to photograph something, how that's going to how that's going to go. 
then I work out what I need to paint and what I don't need to paint. I will not ever paint something I can't see. I don't see the point of it. I really don't. There's just, I, I, I don't have the time to indulge myself in that. Well, I know it's there. You, you, you hear that a lot, don't you? You see that written down a lot. Well, I've done this. I know it's there. That's great if you're a hobbyist, hobby model maker, because that's what your model should be. You should enjoy every single aspect of that kit. It, uh, and, and if that monogram B26 Marauder's got a full interior, paint the whole lot, build the whole lot, because that's where you are with it. That's, that's, that's what you're getting the enjoyment from. It's a hobby you're getting that. But if I don't need to build, if I don't need to paint something or it's not going to be seen, then it won't be. I, I may construct it, so it can be seen in some of the photographs, and you can I can say here you go, this is what it looks like. But on in the main, one of the things I, I I sometimes see online that people have weathered the underside of tank models. You turn them upside down, and they're all sort of weathered underneath. And I'm like, who's ever going to turn one of my models upside down and have a look at it? Why why would I do that? So that adds an that adds a layer of efficiency to it as well. And it and it's a similar kind of thing with cleaning parts up. I've just I've this this afternoon. I I can show you because you're actually on camera, aren't you? So you can kind of see this. I've been working on a a Tamiya Macarver, and I've done all the running gear and all of that kind of stuff. And I I know instinctively what I'll be able to see on on the completed model and what I won't be able to see. So that's where where there's an efficiency as well. And then when it comes to painting, I know what I can use, and I know how quickly I can use that, and I know what's going to react with what. So for instance, I know that I can spray a model in Tamiya acrylics or or their LP paints or Mr. Color or Mr. Hobby paints, those lacquers. I can paint that. I can hair dryer it so that it's dry, go off and make a coffee. And then within that half an hour, I can be putting enamel washes onto it and then dry brushing it within at, at that point. And I know that I'm not going to get a reaction to anything that I put on that. The only time I deviate from that and, and I give give something a lot more time to dry is gloss paints. Gloss paints, it doesn't matter what they are really, but gloss paints tend, tend to need an additional time. So if I'm painting a car body shell, I tend to leave that at least 48 hours for that to toughen up before I start kind of working on it. But I found now what works on what, that I can put enamels over acrylics, I can put acrylics over enamels. You can't put car paints over enamels because it'll bubble. So you know that those things can't be done. So it, it's about that. And I've painted models before now against the deadlines where the parts, the glued parts, aren't dry. They're still moving. You can see them kind of moving, and I, I've worked on, on them like that. But it's needs must. If I don't have to leave it overnight to dry out, then, then I kind of won't. The efficiencies come from the knowledge of what's possible and, and how quickly I can work on something. And, but it's really about the planning, and it's really about that sort of forward thinking idea of, of where I am with it and how, how it's going to go back. That's not suggested that it always runs on rails because it, it doesn't always run on rails and there are always going to be pitfalls that you're going to fall into, but it's being prepared for that really. And also, I, I, I jokingly say this, being a professional model maker is sometimes not about what you can do when it's going well. It's about what you have to do when it's gone really badly wrong and you've got to fix it and you've got to sort of um, repair something quickly. That's That's sort of your knowledge then gets you out of a hole because you think well i can do this i can sort that i can sort this out but there are times when things don't go your way a number of years ago when tamir released their 72nd scale f16 c they they released two versions of it they released a stripped down version without any weapons 
and then they released a secondary version which had all of the all of the whiz bangs on it. Marcus Nichols at Tamir magazine had asked me to build one of these um, for the for the for the magazine, which I was which I was doing, and I had it completed. It was photographed. Uh, it was it was all done. All of the sub assemblies were all ready to go, and all I had to do was glue the ejection seat into place, the ACES two seat into place, and then drop the canopy on, and then photograph it, and then I could send those photographs off to Marcus. It was all done. So I glued it together. I, I went to glue the ejection seat into the cockpit using some Tamiya extra thin cement, you know, with a little brush and everything and dropped it in there. What I didn't realize while I was doing that is that I'd accidentally touched the side of the brush against the, the sill of the cockpit. And I watched in horror as a bead of glue ran down the side of the nose. And as it ran down and I watched it in slow motion, it ate through the, ate through the paint and then it ate through the plastic, it ate through the decor. And I was literally five minutes away from finishing the model. So what I then had to do, because I couldn't fix it there and there, I then went from five minutes to five days to get this model to markers because I had to order a new set of decals from a set of aftermarket decals from Hammond's. I then had to repaint the nose. I had to blend it all in. I had to put all, do all of the detail and everything for a mistake that should never have happened. So you do get these things. Occasionally, something will go awry and you just have to sort of, yeah, walk away from it. And I, I walked away from that because I just thought, I don't walk away from this and calm down. I'm, I'm probably, this is going to be a lawn dart. It is going to go out of the shed and it is going to end up nose deep in my, uh, in my lawn. So, so yeah, it's, it's, it's about that. You can't plan for every eventuality. You can't. And I, it, would be, it, it would be remiss of me to even suggest that you could. But, but sometimes you just, have to, you just have to laugh and just go, yeah, that's, that's what happens. If you don't make any mistakes, you don't learn by them. And now I would never dream of doing it that way around. I would put the glue on the seat and then drop the seat in rather than trying to put the glue in the cockpit. Yeah. So I hope that that's kind of ans- you know got some way close to to answering answering that 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 question really. I think it's spot on. You know, you've mentioned a lot of things that I've taken notes and I'm looking around my desk. I'm like, holy cow! I, I need to get cleaned up. And and you really hit on some just just really great advice on on how to be more efficient at modeling. You know, I, I tend to think that. We as modelers sometimes get bogged down with a dirty desk. I know that I certainly do. And, and your advice, always making sure you're working with a clean workstation. Even the eyesight comment you made and, and looking around you and being less cluttered and probably influences freer thinking, thinking that is very powerful. And, and that is something that I hope to, to put into modeling. One question I have, and this is kind of going a very specific product that you use that I've been turned on to and I really like using. On your aircraft, you tend to use Payne's Gray a lot. It's a color yeah. that I never really heard of until I started reading your articles. And then I have a tube of oil paint on it, and it's incredibly versatile. Can you can you talk about maybe how you discovered that color and where do you use it, how often do you use it, and and just talk about it if that's okay? Payne's Gray is a, is a very dark bluey gray color, for want of a much better description. It's it's certainly got a tint of blue in in it. So it's it's. But the way it works is that it's it's very good for oily stains for where you need darker staining. I tend to use if I'm if I'm running panel lines, for instance, I'll use raw umber mixed with humber or matte black, depending on, on on what I'm kind of working on. But sometimes I want something that's darker than that that I can work into it. And Payne's Grey works really well. There's another color that's that's worth sort of mentioning that, and that's Starship Filth. 
Starship Filth is made by, I think MIG Productions make that. Could be be an AK Interactive colour. I'm not sure, but it's Starship Filth. It it was part and parcel of the Abtalung 502 range originally in the oil tube colours. That's that's another. It's it's dark neutral. That's it. Yeah, yep. you can get them in those those oil brusher colours. Yeah, but you can also get them in the, in the, the, the. I I have them in both. I have them in the tubes, an old tube of colour, and it's a similar kind of thing. It's this neutral dark sort of oily colour mm-hmm. that you get. If you if you look at tractor engines, for instance, where you where the oil is blended in with the with the dust, you get that almost black colour. And you get it around joints and everything, and it works really well for that. I can't really remember where I first became aware of it. I think it was my my late and very dear friend Derek Holmes, who was a sculptor for for the Linden Productions. Derek sculpted lots of his sixteenth scale figures, and also a lot of the large scale two hundred mil busts that Francois sold derek was the sculptor he produced the masters for the for those figures he was teaching me how to paint with oils this was sometimes somewhere around about 2001 2002 i would think and he was painting a celt celtic figure with a steel helmet on and he'd he'd painted this figure and he got this kind of like patina on it that had had this kind of like hammering finish hammered sort of finish and then weathered Around the around the rivets on this helmet, it was really really nice. And so I said to him, I said, "Oh, that's really good. How did you do that?" And he said, "Well, I sprayed it with with Mister Color, a metallic paint. Sprayed it with that, and then I worked in this color." Uh, I said, "Well, what color did you work in?" He said, "I worked in Payne's Gray." He said, "You should try it. It's it's a good color." I went out and bought a tube of this Payne's Gray, which I still have twenty years on, and which I still use, and that's kind of where it came from. And I, 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 I painted a figure in a helmet using the same techniques that he'd come up with, and 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 it worked really well. And and it allows you to sort of blend those colours in. I found it particularly useful recently. I was painting a, a Fokker F twenty seven Friendship, the old Eshi kit that's just been recently re released by Italeri. I wanted to try and get the, the, the grubbiness around the, the turboprop engines. A lot of airliner models are built clean, but airliners aren't clean, really. They're, they're, they're quite grubby machines because they're used all the time. They're, they're never on the ground. And I wanted to get that, that differentiation between the sort of the lighter panel lines that I defined and then some of the oils. And I used Payne's Grey for that. It's a, it's a really kind of, it's a really useful colour for that. And it's also useful if you look at modern jets, often modern jets will, you'll see streaking coming from, from rivets and bolts across at the back of airframes. REF aircraft spray that were painted in grey often, you often would see this, these delicate runs of colour that come across the surface. I found it useful for that because it is neutral enough that it doesn't look like a colour. It just looks like a tone. And what I mean by that, you, you can have tones of, of, of surrounding colours without you looking at it and going, well, that looks blue. It, you'll just go, oh, that just looks like a tone of dirty sort of shades on that. And that's where it came from. It was it was a really, really useful colour. It's definitely a colour, if you are weathering, it's definitely something that's very useful to have in your toolbox, especially for, for aircraft models, I, I, I find. And it's certainly useful for, for oil stains and grease stains and, and those kind of things, yeah. That's, that's great feedback. And I'm certainly going to try to use it in the manners that you described. And I'll echo Starship Filth. It's it's such a versatile color. I, I love using it in almost every aspect of the build. You know, the next topic I'd love to talk about is is kind of turning back the clock 
in terms of, you know, modeling in general. And it's something that you've, you know, you've really made popular on Facebook lately, and that's your legacy builds and kind mm -hmm. of the approach to modeling, taking a step back, turning back the clock and really getting to the roots, you know, bringing that Verlinden style back to life. Yeah. You know, can you expand on what brought you to do to do that and and where where's it going do you think? The the legacy collection is 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 kind of an interesting diversion I guess from it it was born of 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 one single kit purchase last year uh, that happened uh, I think in February of last year. So so the pandemic hadn't hit. We were still we were still so that was still a couple of months off into the distance, and and John and I were were sort of talking about old kits, and I'd mentioned about this SDK said two five one Hanamac that Tamiya do, and I'd gone to a local Hobbycraft, which is which is a chain of uh, of shops in the UK. They got one there, and it was about ten quid, and I thought well, I'll buy one of those and 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 have a look at it. It was a memory. Um, jolt as well because uh, my mum had bought me the kit that kit when I was when I was a child um, sort of 12 or 13 for Christmas it was the last time I, I, I'd owned it and, and I had sort of fond memories of seeing this kit and I thought well I'll buy this and, and, and see why I can do something with it and, and, and have a look I, I didn't really know what I was going to do with it but I thought well, I'll give it a go then I sort of got back and, and John sent me a rather rude message because I'd bought the kit and he hadn't but we sort of chatted about it and, and, and everything and and then I sort of forgot about it. I, I got involved in other things. I forgot about it. And then the lockdown happened and I was furloughed from work. So I, had, I was sort of at a bit, bit of a loose end. And so what I said, we, we chatted about doing a live broadcast and basically doing something every day where we could sort of show people and, and bring people together and, and that kind of thing. And I said, well, what I'll do is I'll build that 251. I'll build that Hanamag, put that together and see what, see what it looks like. You know, don't sort of, I might detail it and all of that sort of thing. And he said, no, don't do that. Just build it. Build it and paint it and see what you can run with. So then I, I started thinking about this 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 kind of approach, this Valinden approach. And I thought, well, I've got a kit that's essentially 45 years old. Why am I thinking about doing anything with this? Why don't I approach this in the way that I would have done when I first bought it or had it as a, as a, as a youngster, uh, you know, when I was getting into following Francois' work and all of that kind of thing? And so I thought to myself, well, that's what I'll do. I'll treat it as a completely, as a complete legacy idea. I've got a legacy kit and I will build and paint it using his techniques. So I'll use washes and dry brushing and, and I won't bother with, I won't bother with any of the modern flourishes, any of the modern tools and techniques. I'll airbrush it. I'll do all of that kind of stuff. But I won't really do anything else with it. And, and I'll see what I can kind of come up with, you know, maybe paint the figures and, uh, and all of that. And it was at the same time that I started to think, well, maybe what I'll do then is I'll do a diorama around it. If, that, if I'm going to build a vehicle, I'll, I'll build a diorama. Uh, it, it should be pointed out that I was friend, I'm friends with Francois, and, I have, and I've known him for a long time. And I've been very fortunate to have been able to sit with him at his bench and, and sort of learn his ideas and his techniques. And I've, I've spent a great deal of my life studying his models. I wanted to replicate what, a, a building in the style of a VP building from, from back in the day. Not complicated, something small and, and do all of that. And so the idea sort of snowballed. And I thought, well, I've, I'll do that then. And I'll create a diorama based around his ideas, his techniques. Remember what he taught me, how, how he'd gone about doing that. And then what I'll do is I'll photograph it the way that he would have photographed it so that it looks like something out of a Tamiya catalogue. Do it that way. The idea just 
sort of gathered momentum, really. Um, it got, and then Andy Farmer got in touch with me. Andy Farmer is, is I think, is, is one of the – he works for the hobby company. He's been in the industry for decades. He's a very knowledgeable guy. He contacted me and he said, Spence, you're building the 251 Hanamac. Uh, and I said, yeah. He said, well, you do realize that that's the second best-selling Tamiya kit ever, don't you? And I said, no, I didn't realize that. And he said, the top five best-selling military miniatures kits in Tamiya, 35th scale, are the Hanamag, the original Panzer, uh, Panther, the Panzer II, the Chieftain, and the Flak 37, 88 millimeter gun. Those are the top five. They're the best-selling Tamiya kits. He said, I will send you those kits for you to have a look at, and why don't you build them all through the summer, and then we can, we can have a kind of a collection. And that's where the legacy collection came from. That, that's essentially what happened. So then I went away to decide how I was going to approach this and, and get the ideas that I needed and all of that sort of stuff. And I thought, well, if I'm going to build these in the style of Francois's work, this legacy collection, then I need to build the dioramas and get into his thought processes, get into his head and build and paint them the way he would have done and not think, well, that, you know, those ammo boxes wouldn't be there. Those helmets wouldn't be hanging off the turret that way. You know, you'd need to tie all of that kind of stuff on. I, what I did is I disassociated my 2021 brain and from, from the project and went back to 1982 to the, to the point where I was first aware of his books. And I spent hours, hours and hours studying every single diorama I had photographs of to try and get into that kind of mindset. And I, I became completely obsessed with making sure that everything was right, even to the point of mixing colours, specific colours that I knew I couldn't buy to get the shades the way they were back in 1982, getting the, getting, um, the oil paints exactly the same. I, I even trawled out to friends of mine to see whether I could get original, humbrol, authentic, enamels that he'd used for dry brushing back then so I could get that idea as well also you know the way that certain things were painted and everything so I really was properly stepping into that 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 kind of role I was astonished by how popular it became and how many people liked it you know how many people wanted to wanted to sort of be part and parcel of, uh, of all of this and it and it it became it expanded out and we started chatting about it. And then the collection got built, different dioramas were finished. I think I finished over the summer period last year, I did 10 dioramas overall um, with various other bits and pieces. And then what that's done is that's led me on to this year's cluster of work and it will lead me to Shep Payne. So I will go from Francois Verlinden and I will go then, I will try and then get into the, to the mind of his his original inspiration which was Shep Payne and and hopefully I'll be able to sort of and that's a completely different mindset Shep Payne's dioramas are completely different in approach they're completely different in paint style in detail in in layout to, to Francois different whole different animal so that's learning something else so yeah it's been a really interesting kind of experience really to do that because you're so you you're just basically forgetting everything you've learned for for 25 years 30 years you're going back to square one 
to be able to do that. And I go back to the point I made right at the beginning of our conversation, where it's about learning genre and being able to genre hop between between mm. different different styles and, uh, and different modelers and being able to copy and ape their style. So essentially forging. I've become a forger. I've become <laughs> a model-making forger, um, which, is, which is an interesting thing. But one of the things that is interesting about that, though, and a lot of people, you know, uh, have said, oh, you know, people just copying Francois style. You know, there's so many models out there. You try copying one of his models. I own three of them, uh, one of which I restored last year, uh, M1 Abrams, which I spent a great deal of time restoring. I own a number of his models. You try copying his models. He doesn't think in straight lines. He, he never. He's never thought in straight lines. So you can't say, well, what you need to do with this is build this, and then you paint it, you put a cloudy finish on it, then you put wash on it, then you put, then you dry brush it, and do all of those kind of things. They won't look the way his models look. And I, that's something else I had to learn as well. I had to, I had to stop thinking in straight lines. I had to be free formed about the whole thing. And yeah, it was, it was a, it was a really fascinating experience getting into the mind of somebody that you that I am, admire more than anyone else. He's, he's absolutely number one inspiration for me. So it was, it was really good fun to do that. Spencer, aside from the nostalgia and your affection for Francois, do you find yourself enjoying the processes that you're employing rather than the newer processes that you've kind of unlearned for these builds? Without doubt. Without doubt. I found that I liked I liked building those models far more than the ones that I'd built using far more involved and advanced techniques. And I liked the finished models more. And, and, and how I know that is because those dioramas are on display in my display case, whereas other models that I've painted using other techniques and more modern techniques aren't. They're, they're packed away. But part of the reason f- for that is that that I think we've got to a point in the hobby where finishes on models are now so involved and so expansive and so, I guess, close to realism in, in, in that sense, that we're, we're micro-finishing and micro-managing projects to make them look great in photographs. That's, that's the biggest, I, I think, that I think, that that's a development that's that's been really difficult to deal with and legislate for over the over the the sort of the last i guess 10 15 years and that is that most models that people build these days because of social media because of the advent of twitter or facebook or instagram or whatever people are photographing their work way more than they ever did before and those photographs are done on high resolution digital cameras or high resolution phones so you're seeing a lot of the detail they're, they're often done in closer and so people want to impress their friends. So model making to, for, for uh, understandably has, has become something that is used to impress your peers. Rather than years back, you would build models to impress yourself. You did it to, to, to have the model and, and all of that sort of stuff. A lot of times these days, your instinct is to finish a model and then show it off and go, yeah, here you go, and then put it online. I do that because it's my business to do that, and, and I, 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 you know, I make kind of no secret of that sort of thing. But what that means is that every aspect of your build can be looked at in in microscopic detail. Whereas back then, that wasn't the case. You were looking at projects in the round. You weren't looking at a, a road wheel that had been blown up the size of a, an IMAX screen. You were just looking at the project in the round. 
to be able to build models in the round, if if you understand what that what I mean by that, is that I was I was concerning myself with the completed piece rather than concerning myself with a tiny detail that that formed only a small part of it. So that meant I could work faster. For instance, I could paint, I could weather uh, the Hanamag. The Hanamag took me less than a day to completely paint and weather. And it meant I was working fast. I was, I was sort of going through that really quickly. And then once it was together, I, I, I could look at it and then finesse it slightly. So on those models, I didn't put paint chips on them, for instance. There's, there's virtually no paint chips on any of those, mo- those armour builds I did last year. And so that, so that the, the finishes are much more, they're, they're, they're kind of more, instead of being, instead of being pr- pr- precise and kind of technological, they're more trompe l'oeil in their approach. I, I'm getting people to see things that aren't necessarily there. And, and I liked the way that that allowed me to work quickly. The whole point of them was that I was able to work, work on them fast. So each of the dioramas was taking me no more than 10, about 10 days until I worked on that Honda S600 diorama of the garage, then that was much more involved. And that was much more my style rather than Francois' style. So, so from that point of view, because I was working quickly and I wasn't really thinking, I wasn't overthinking it, I enjoyed it more. Um, I, I find that if I get bogged down in a project and I get bogged down in, 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 the, in the technicalities of a thing, I start to lose my enthusiasm for it. it I, I think it's because part of it is that I want the completed model. That's, that's why I build models. To me, the, the whole point of me building models isn't the process of me putting, and painting, putting the model together and painting it. It's so that I can have the completed model at the end of, the, uh, at the end of it. It, it it's, I guess it's similar to you know, cooking a risotto. You know, I, I, I want to eat the risotto. I don't want to stand there for 20 minutes stirring in the stock until the risotto's ready. I, I don't have any enjoyment from stirring the stock. I just want to eat the risotto, you know, and share my meal with Elizabeth. So it, it's, I find that with, with model making. It's one of the reasons as well why I don't spend months and months and months on, on a build. It, it's, I get to a certain point where I'm like, right, I'm done now. <laughs> let's, let, let's get this thing off my bench because I want to start something else. Uh, I kind of move on to, to, another, to another build. So that it, it was about it was about doing it quickly, um, but I did then find uh, oddly, uh, and I've started doing this with this macabre. I've, I've started to think, well, I've seen quite a lot of these macabres built. Maybe I, you know, I should paint it in this way and all of that. And, and so I, I, I have slipped back into my into my sort of twenty twenty one philosophy uh, and approach, and I've sort of moved away. But I think what I'll do is I'll fight that as much as I can, so I'll get back into and, and the macabre will be will be another legacy build it'll be done along those lines so yeah it, it yeah so the answer to your question simply is yes i enjoyed them more i, f- I found them found it a much more enjoyable thing to be to be more free form and more flowing than i than i would than i would normally be it's really exciting to hear the passion in your answer about rediscovering that joy and kind of trying that style and trying to emulate a style that was really influential on you, but then finding that not only can you emulate it, but you enjoy doing that. Um, mm. With regards to those models, and also you mentioned, you know, uh, moving on to doing the same approach with Shep Payne's models, will there be any publications of these legacy builds that you kind of collate 
and publish yeah. in a book or, or some kind of form? There are three books already in the planning for the Legacy series. I've already done the covers for them. So, so they're all ready, and the articles are all collated, ready to go. The first one is on the the first legacy build is likely to be on the garage because that's the one I've designed, I've almost designed. So that that would be the, the the kind of the first one, and then the second book is on the top five. So it's Panzer Two, the Panther Chieftain, Flak Thirty Seven, and the Panamag. So that's the dioramas based around those three, and then the next book will be sort of preceding dioramas. As far as Shet Payne's concerned, I haven't I haven't sort of decided on that yet. I've been chatting quite a lot to Mike Reeves from from your parish, and he sent me a couple of monogram 30-second scale kits, Panzer IV and the M47 pattern, um, to sort of think about. And I feel that if I'm going to do a Shet Payne-inspired collection, then I really need to think about, about using monogram kits for that. He built to me a kit, and he was kind of known for, for, for some of the dioramas. Famously, the, the M47 pattern that he did in the revetment was one of his. He also did a, a Peace for Galilee diorama based around the, the Tamiya Macava. Mm-hmm. He also did the uh, – there was one based around the M1 Abrams and the Bradley as well, which was quite a famous, famous mm-hmm. diorama. And also the M60. You might remember the M60 with the M1 Abrams where he had the M60 crew um, being less than polite to the M1 Abrams crew that had broken down, which was kind of a genius thing. But I, I sort of feel that that project will actually be a monogram Shet Paint project. And so I will, uh, and, and it will also be a mix. It will probably be a couple of dioramas based around armor, and it'll be a couple of dioramas based around aircraft as well, because obviously he's well known for, for his aircraft models, um, dioramas. Can I recommend an aircraft and the B-25 specifically at the Boneyard? That one. Yeah. I mean, it's such a great diorama, isn't it? Yeah. And the the great thing about that diorama was that was the one really where he introduced the idea of gizmology. That phrase had never been used before in, 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 in kind of any publication. And he explained it in his book where he says, I, I used gizmology on this. Uh, one of the engines is missing off that diorama. And he said, I used lead wire and some, some plastic bits from the spares box to, to, to give the idea that there was detail there. That's where, that's, the diff, that's where the differences lie between the way that Shep approached things, the way Francois approached things. Shep was broader in his sweep. He was more impressionistic in terms of, of the way that his dioramas were, com- were, were completed. So when you're looking at, at those completed scenes, it's about the story. The story is always front and centre with everything that, that Shep did. The, the B-25 in the boneyard, there's, it's a still life. There's no figures on that on that diorama at all. There's not in it even any wildlife, I don't think. And yet you know instinctively when you look at it, you know exactly what it is. Lady Be Good is another one as well. Lady Be Good is another famous example of a diorama that is a still life. It's almost got no, it's got no real kind of landscaping to it as well. It's essentially just sand. It, he could have put that on a piece of, on a piece of sandpaper and it would have had the same impact as a, as a scene. But then, you know, when you start looking at the armor dioramas, specifically those dioramas for, for the monogram leaflets that went in the monogram kits in the 1970s, you can, see, you can see a very distinct and definite style and approach with those, with those models. And that's something that I want to try and emulate if I can. And again, that means switching my brain off and going into a different place with, with, with his work because it's really going to be more about the figures than it is going to be about the vehicles, because the figures were so important to what he did in that 
if you look at, for instance, the Calliope diorama that he did with, with the M4 Sherman in the Ardennes, you see the, the the Sherman being painted in the whitewash, but on the uh, but by the side of that, you've got a guy who's all holding a broom, and you've got another guy who's applying the paint. There's just two figures, I think, in that. Maybe three. I can't. But I think there are only two figures in that. But essentially, you get the story from that. It's the same with there's an M4 Sherman going through a through Bocage, going through the through the um, through the hedgerows there, and you and you get the, the figures running upwards. So that's that's sort of really where I'm where I'm looking with that. So I'm trying to pick the pick apart the, those ideas. The Calliope is definitely one that I will build for that. I'm adamant that that's one of the ones I'll do. And also uh, the Panzer IV, I think he he built the Panzer IV in a number of iterations for for for, for those leaflets. But he also he built them from the box. He he built the Brumbear as well and the Whirlwind, the Ostwind. He built and he also converted the. Panzer IV into an E, I think, uh, in the desert, which which is which I kind of like the idea of, and again used a lot of gizmology inside that te- inside that vehicle, and that's one of the things that I think is interesting about this legacy idea. And, and I had this conversation a few nights ago. One of his most famous dioramas is the Medic Station. The Medic Station appeared in the Tamir catalogue in about 1984, I think, before they sort of stopped doing dioramas. Medic Station is essentially a very small scene and it is a tiny bombed out building and a jeep coming around a corner on two wheels, I think, in the diorama. And you've got the, the medics with a, with a wounded GI in, in, in the back. And then at the doorway of the diorama is a guy standing in the doorway, the medic. And then there's, there's a GI who's, who is in the scene, is cleaning blood off a stretcher. That's, that's the diorama right there. There's no detail in that model. If you look at it closely, there's virtually nothing in there. There's no fine detail. The building doesn't have any drain pipes. It doesn't have any particular finely detailed windows. There's hardly any accessories on it. Originally, the diorama was changed for the Tamir catalogue. Originally, it had a dead body on it, and it had a, it had a body covered in a tarpaulin that's in the front right-hand corner. No, the front left-hand corner as you're looking at it. And it went against Japanese sensibilities. They don't like dead bodies on it, on anything. So so what they did when the diorama was completed, it was changed. And that dead body was removed. And in place of that dead body was a pile of ammo boxes, wooden crates that you see on the actual on the actual diorama. And the blood that had drained off the stretcher underneath the GI was painted out. It was painted brown. So it just looks like he's washing it, but there's no blood on the diorama at all. So originally, there were no accessories on that diorama at all. And yet, if you were to build that today, the way that he built it back in 1983 or, or whenever it was, and put that in front of an uber-detailed, you know, hyper-painted diorama that's made by some of the top guys now, it would look really out of place. But what you've got there is that you've got the difference between an impressionistic painter, Monet or Manet or whatever, painting water lilies, those kind of things, and somebody these days who can create hyper-realistic pencil drawings of a face. That's the sort of difference. But those two things work in concert with each other. They work, in ta- they work together. They're, not, they're part of the same world. They're part of the artistic world, and one doesn't outstrip the other. And so it'll be interesting, I think, to, to try and get myself into that headspace of creating something that isn't detailed, but is based around the story. So my concern is finding the stories 
that work for the dioramas because I'm not going to be able to I'm not going to be able to sort of use detailed accessories and all of that kind of thing as my jump off point because Shep didn't use it. It would be ridiculous if I put loads of loads of accessories around it. So it, that will be really fascinating to me. This is a great time to kind of ask you a question that I, I have here. We've had an ongoing discussion with a lot of the guests that we've had on our podcast about this idea of modeling being art. And when it comes to your work, what would you say that your vision of your work as a statement of art is or or how, if, if you could put on uh, someone else's hat when they're looking at your work, how do you think they would describe your work in, in those terms? Um, I've had a lot of people describe me as an artist and my work as art. I, I, I've never really seen myself in that way at all. I, I, don't see my, um, I don't see my work or my, I don't see myself as an artist. And I, I don't really see my work in that way. That could be an exercise in being self-effacing, I, I guess. I, I'm, I'm, it, it can sometimes come across when, I, when I'm talking to people, and I've been accused of this, of being quite egotistical. And I think anybody that does this for a living and, and puts themselves out there in chats like this or puts themselves on, 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 on the page has a certain degree of ego. You, you wouldn't put yourself out there if you, if you didn't believe in what you do. And I do fundamentally believe in what I do. I, I fundamentally believe, uh, and if I can be slightly arrogant about it, I do believe I'm good at what I do. But then after 45 years, if I wasn't, I perhaps should do something else. I should perhaps go and, you know, I don't know, sweep floors or something. So, so you know, law of averages states that I, would, I should improve <laughs> with, with each, each of those things over that time. I, I see myself more as an, as an artisan rather than an artist often when, I, when I'm doing things. And I, I see my work in that way because a lot of the projects that I do are, are essentially a mechanical process. I, I, I get a kit. I know what I've got to do with it, and I know what I've got to show the readers of the publications that I'm, I'm creating the work for. So it becomes a mechanical process in, in that sense. So artisanally, artisanally, that's where my work comes out, in, in, you know, in much the same way that the ancient Roman sculptors were artisans. They didn't really look at their, at their statues and think, oh, it's a piece of art. I, I, I've created something artistic. No, it was something that they built for a particular purpose to go on a plinth outside a palace. So I often see that. However, I, I think I should caveat that slightly from my own personal point of view, is that where I deviate from that thought process is when I'm building dioramas, because dioramas are a different thing. Because dioramas take into account aspects that a standard mo- model build, like the Lancaster or a Spitfire or whatever, doesn't. What that then incorporates and encapsulates is things such as storytelling, Things as the the layout of the scene, the way that you pose things, the way that you're that you're trying to create a, a completed three dimensional image that's going to be looked at by a viewer who then can see what it is instantly, can go yeah I can understand that. So I think that's where where my artistic tendencies come out, and it's why I have to build dioramas because I have to I have to satisfy that need every so often, and I don't get that satisfaction when I'm when I'm building. A stock aircraft model because it, it is for a purpose. My job essentially is broken down in the following way. I build three-dimensional objects to take two-dimensional images. That's what I do. My models are very rarely, unless I take them to a model show, they're very rarely seen by anybody but me. 
my friends see them occasionally if they pop around. But as as three dimensional objects, they only exist to create photographs. That that's that's essentially it. So so and when you break it down like that, it becomes a, it becomes a slightly sort of odd sort of thing that you end up doing. So I need the dioramas to to be able to push that out, I, and I need to create something that I can imagine. When I'm building an F-16, I'm replicating a real F-16. When I'm building a diorama, I'm creating something that doesn't exist anywhere else other than in my head. I don't replicate actual buildings. I don't replicate locations. I don't replicate people. Diorama building, an armor building, actually, and I'm probably going to get shot down for this, in its purest sense, is science fiction modeling. And I'll explain that. What I mean by that, and I've had arguments with armor models about this, Unless you are replicating an actual vehicle in exactly the markings that it carried and that the crew dressed in the uniforms that, that they were wearing when they operated that vehicle and they looked like the crew and the stowage is identical in placement and, and everything else and the weathering and paint finish is identical, then you've imagined a chunk of that model. You're imagineering part of that, of that model. And certainly within dioramas, Dioramas is is absolutely science fiction because 99.99% of all dioramas ever made is completely imaginary. It's completely made up. It doesn't, they don't exist. These places don't exist. The action didn't exist. It's never taken place. So you are you're creating a fantasy. And that's why diorama building and armor building is so uh, appealing as a genre, because you can stretch out, you can you can create things that don't exist. In, in a way that you can't do when you're building aircraft models. Because, for instance, you wouldn't, put, you wouldn't build a model of a Spitfire Mark 9 and put P-51 drop tanks under the wings because that would be nonsense. So, so in, in that sense, aircraft modeling tends to be more about the prototype and the replication of the prototype, whereas with armor and dioramas and, and that kind of thing, you're stretching out more, you're using imagination, you're using things that you wouldn't necessarily need for for other engineering studies in miniature cars, aircraft, motorcycles, trains, those kind of things. And it's the same, you know, if you were building a, a railway layout. Railway layout's completely made up as well, complete fantasy. And I, I appreciate that I'll get shot if people are reading. I, I, I don't really think that. I, I, I am a, my, my models are, are based on fact. Yeah, they are. They are based on fact. And, and, and I, I'm not in any way dismissing what you're doing all i'm suggesting is that that you're you're creating something that that doesn't necessarily exist in reality i've sort of i've sort of gone off but i feel like i might have gone off the point there but but that's sort of how i that's how i think really about that oh the artist and artisan so yeah so that's how do i see myself as an artist occasionally yes is i think is the is, is the strongest answer i can give to that oftentimes no Interesting. Well, I think you're you're bringing in the element of science fiction into that, and art are kind of tied at the hip because it implies a certain freedom of expression in the way. Because honestly, when it comes down to it, whether it's a diorama or just a scale model, it's the finish that Spencer applies to that subject that makes that model Spencer's rather than you know the kit itself, which is you know the goal of the kit manufacturers is ostensibly to make a replica that is true to the original right mm, yeah and and i think that we've got we, we touched on this slightly earlier on i guess and and 
and, and I did exactly this last year when I did the legacy bills because obviously I was in the headspace of somebody that I, I admired. A, a large proportion of model making within the 21st century is people building models of other people's models rather than building models of actual subjects because there is so much out there now. People are so inspired by what they see, the kits that come, new kits that come out, and some of the top guys share all their work on Instagram. You look at it. And, and instinctively, you go, yeah, I really want to build that. I really want to do that. And that's where the basis for a lot of aftermarket finishing products has come from, you know, mid-productions, AK Interactive, all of those kind of guys, Vallejo, whoever it might be, Humbrol, whoever. Those, those businesses are based on the idea of utilization of systems that allow you to build models in a certain way, in a certain style. Games Workshop are another good example of that. They sell you paints that are that are are there for that system, and they then offer you all of the books that you need to use those paints within that within that system. Although I've dabbled with that over the over the years, I'm not really interested in it at all. I don't feel the need to do that anymore. I, I feel that that whereas perhaps years ago I was I was I was happy to 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 do that and to and to work within that sort of that idea of seeing a kit at a show and go yeah I really want to build that I, I, I genuinely cannot tell you the last time I looked at somebody's kit build and thought I'm going to build that kit because I've seen it put together it has to be it has to be based on something more fundamental for me that, than, than that and, and I guess part of that is that I'm, I'm I'm hamstrung with my choices because I get I get sent them so it's like can you build this so, so my decisions are always ta- are almost taken away from me. I, you know, it'd be, it'd be like somebody cooking for me every night. You'll have what you're given, kind of thing. Yeah, okay, that's fine. You know, I'll have you know, I'll have I don't know burgers and chips for the fifth night running. If that's the kind of the the, the sort of the thing that that happens, that, then that's fine. And so, when I do make my choices, when I do make decisions on, on things that I want to make. Then, then they are quite specific, and and, and I and I sort of think, yeah, that, that's kind of cool. Don't get me wrong. I, I one of the things that I love more than anything else, and I spend an inordinate amount of time doing it, is looking at other people's models. You know, checking out what other people are doing and, and seeing how how they go. And I, I'm I'm endlessly inspired by by the work of of other people out there, and not only the top guys as well. I think it's really important. When you're when you're looking at other people's work, is that you see you see models from the world's best modeling, and they're kind of everywhere. But also, I think it's inspiring to see work by beginners and work by model makers who are kind of just starting out. Just le- they're on they're learning the process. Bottom line is, we're all on the same path. I just happen to be further down the path than a lot of other people, but we've all started at the same. We've started at point A. We're all going to point Z if we can kind of, you know, kind of get there. We're all on that same pathway. We're just at different points on it. And sometimes I'll see, you know, a model maker who, you know, on Twitter, I, I'm, I'm on Twitter quite a bit, and I, I see on there, and he's, he's started off with this build, and it's just like, what? Well, what do you think of this? And you know that it's probably his first kit. He's painted it with 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 brush. It's, you know, the finish is pretty rough and ready, and all that sort of stuff. But it kind of warms my heart slightly because then what I do is I put myself in that position 40 years ago when I was sat in my bedroom at my mum's house, you know, gluing together little plastic parts and I, you know, on my own. And, and I had four or five tins of Humbrol and, and a little jar with the paintbrushes 
stood up in it. So all the, all the ferrules of the brushes were bent over. But I loved it. And that's what they're doing. You know, they're loving it. They're, they're sat at, the, at their kitchen table, whiling away a few hours building. It, it, I find it very emotional to talk about, about that part of the hobby, because I think that part of the hobby is often forgotten by other aspects of it, by this constant need for, for progression and this constant need to impress our peers. And, and I think that the, the, the one thing that, I, that I, I find, I, don't get me wrong, I like to impress my peers. I think that's, that's kind of important and it keeps me ahead of the game. But I think it's really important to be aware of those people because those people make up 95% of the hobby. It's not the 5% who, who are vocal, the 5% who get interviewed on, 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 on sites like this or put their work on Instagram or Facebook or have thousands of followers. It's not that 5% that, that really holds the hobby up. It's the 95% of completely invisible people who are out there buying a kit at the weekend to forget the fact that they've worked 45 hours in the factory trying to earn money to keep the roof over the heads of of their family and keep the you know keep the walls from the door those are they're way more important than i am and they're way more important to this this industry and this hobby than 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 the guys who are winning gold medals at, at competitions and we need to keep that in mind so 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 my inspiration is often from them what can i give to them that will in some way allow those people to to work through work through and, and, and get better and stay with the hobby, stay with the industry. What can I give those people? Um, and that's one of the reasons why the simplified legacy collection was important because all of the techniques and the ideas I used in that were rock bottom basic. There was nothing difficult in that other than perhaps airbrushing, which was a slightly more advanced thing. And the other thing about that that was really important, and John and I talked about this a lot, was all of those kits were under £20, every single one of them. In fact, some of them were under ten pounds at a time when the, the you know the, the pandemic is 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 running riot around the world. People are losing their jobs on mass. The people are you know are, are, are desperately trying to keep their families safe. The idea that we could you know be putting up hundred and fifty pound kits and and you know and, and and saying oh well you need to do this you need to use a you know this that and the other to put these these molds together it seemed anathema to us. We didn't really like the idea of it. Uh, and we were very strict about that. Uh, and we did some challenges as well. And the challenge was that we used a kit, a really cheap kit, and we had to build it in 10 days. And we were only allowed to use one accessory set with that. And that accessory set couldn't take the project over 20 quid. And, and we were really sort of, you know, we were quite fundamental about it. So, so that's, that's where, the inspiration, where the inspiration is. And, and, and I think it's something we, we all really need to, to hold on to, I, I think that not everybody is not everybody's a genius in the hobby and that sometimes we need to take a step back and and think you know maybe they need they need more help and more plaudits and more more kind of positivity going in their direction than i do basically i'm really glad you brought this up and in our last podcast we were discussing a post that David Hurrigan who's a really great fan, a miniature modeler specializes in kind of architectural scenes from Australia. He had posted online about what do you think is the most important advancement we've had in the hobby? Is it glues? Is it new kits? And I had kind of brought up the fact that social media allows us to collaborate. Mm. 
we can go online and we can we can we can say Spencer I saw that Airfix or that Airfix Lancaster wow how did you get such a great finish on that paint I've seen you respond and you know I, I can say hey John how did you get that great wash on that that Panzer 3 that power of collaboration I think has changed the the identity of the community of scale modelers and mm. as you mentioned earlier in our interview it tends to be solitary, but there's a lot of power in collaborating with other modelers of different levels of talent, and, and it, it brings a whole new aspect into the hobby. At least it does for me. Absolutely, and I think that's, that it's just so important. And, 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 you know, the caveat to that is that it can be a double-edged sword, can't it? I mean, we've all seen, you know, what appear to be absolute beginners asking a, a, a rock-bottom basic question and then getting pilloried for it. Well, don't you know that? Google's your friend. Well, yeah, come on, <laughs> you know, it, it, I, I see that as, um, you know, it, that, that, that's similar to, to back in the day when we go to model shows and I was like 17 years old and I'd go up to somebody and say, oh, how did you do that? How did you paint that? And they go, well, I, I, you know, go away and practice kind of thing. That wasn't, you know, that, that, that sort of became one of those apocryphal stories, didn't it? You know, that older model makers would say to younger people, just go away and practice. Well, yeah, that happened to me on a number of occasions. And so I did go away and practice. And then I went back to them afterwards and said, oh, this is what I've done. You know, and I always kind of remembered how I felt about that. You know, how you feel as a, I guess it's hard to believe now, but I was a really shy teenager, really, really, you know, um, very kind of insular, very shy guy. And I, I got to the point where that used to really irritate me. And I thought, well, I'm, ne- I'm never going to be that person. I'm certainly not going to. I'm not going to go out and, and, and do that kind of thing. I, I'm going to make sure that that whenever I, you know, I, I sort stuff out, I'm going to I'm going to be doing it, you know, for the right reasons and not not be snotty about it. So so that that is important, and, and we need to remember those people without doubt. I, I, I think, and, and and you're right. What this has done is it's completely democratized that sharing of information across across groups and, and allowed people access to 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 groups that they would never normally have never never normally have had and in the main most people that you ask questions of are, are fabulous about it aren't they they'll, they'll say yeah i'll tell you and i always say that, that, that it's always has been the same with me why would i not want to tell somebody something it's not like I've already learned it. It's, it uh, you know, by the time, hopefully, by the time they get to to be able to do that, but I've kind of moved on to do something else. So, no, that's that's incredibly powerful, Spencer, and I, I really appreciate that viewpoint. And and you mentioned there are so many new people coming into this hobby, especially now because of the pandemic, and you see very straightforward questions being asked online, and and it's a reminder that we were all there once, and it, it's it's important to shepherd people into the hobby. At, and allow them to grow and make them feel welcome. You know, yes. it's it's incredibly important. And, and fortunately, and the history with you and me, I know I've reached out to you on several occasions, either through a post or private message, through multiple means, whether it's hyperscale, uh, missing links, Facebook. I've always felt um, very welcome to ask a, even a simple question about what what oil mm. paint you used, and and that's incredibly motivating to me to grow my craft and and just enjoy the hobby and. And I really appreciate that. One thing I, yeah. I want to get to is, you know, I want to be respectful of your time. We've, we've been chatting for what seems like minutes, but it's it's gone on a long time. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and and I, 
you know, you know, Scott and I have said we could talk to you for hours because it's been so enjoyable, and you give such a fresh perspective that very few people, I think, can you know give. To be honest, you know, the history of the hobby, plethora of kits, the people you've met, the genres of hobby, you know, the genre of modeling that you've you've accomplished, you know, going back in time, essentially. One of the things I want to impress on our listeners and and allow you to explain about is where can people find your work? You know, you've done a lot of self-publishing. If if someone wanted to buy a book from you, how would they go about doing? It? Well, the 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 best place to go really, most people that that know my work follow me on 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 my Facebook page and it is just my personal page. So, it's just Spencer Pollard on on Facebook or whatever. I have a Twitter feed as well which is under the same name, but I also have a blog um called the Kitbox which is on WordPress, which you can find. Um, and on there, you'll, you'll be able to sort of see bits and pieces. As far as my work is concerned, yeah, I, I, I publish my own books. They're all limited edition, so they don't go through shops or anything like that. I don't, I don't sell through, through a third party. And I only ever print a very small number of them. They're, they're basically done as a, as a kind of collation of my material so I can put them out there. I hope you'll sort of forgive my indulgence, but the next one is on the Starfighter. Um, which will which, which is due out next month. Um, I'm, I'm working on the completing the designs for that, and I kind of do everything. I'm sort of chief cook and bottle washer for those for those books. So that those are the kind of the best places. But I'm also I was the editor, but I'm not anymore. I I, I actually um, left my post last year to sort of do other things. But I'm the sort of in-house model maker for Do Little Media. So I work for Brett Green at um, Model Airplane. I work also for Marcus Nichols at Tamiya Magazine as well, so you can see my work there. Yeah, my work's kind of all over the place, really. And, and you can sort of search, if you search my name, you'll, you'll certainly be able to find, them, find the models. I don't really indulge myself too much anymore in forums. I, I, I used to be sort of on Hyperscale. I used to put a lot of stuff on, on there, but, but other platforms have taken my time. And I think part of that is not because I don't want to. It's just that I find myself doing doing more of that than I do of, of kind of building and everything's become a bit a bit a bit more sort of difficult over the over the last sort of few years and the other thing as well as if, if you want to follow us is the interesting modeling company um, which is on Facebook and um, John and I set this up last year as really as a, a as a as a way of bringing model in the same way that you guys are uh, with your podcast it's it's a it's a way of bringing models together and, and doing things that that are that that allow us to sort of just do something entertaining for people each week. And the way we do that is that we, we, we do a broadcast on a Wednesday night, which is basically us doing this, essentially. We're just chatting, just talking about things that interest us. And then on a Sunday night, we do a new news broadcast, which is we round up things that we've seen that week. So that's more of an industry sort of new, news thing. So that's another place called the Interesting Modeling Co. You can find that on Facebook. It's, it's something to, to look at. But Anybody that wants to follow me, just send me, you know, if you are on Facebook, you want to follow me and, you know, you've seen this, just send me a message and say, look, I've seen this. Can you, can you follow? Can I follow you? Yeah, I'll, I'll sort that out. I also have a couple of Facebook pages of my own, one of which is, is, is a modeling page that's bookended onto that, which I can't remember what the name of it is now, actually. It might be the kit box on Facebook. I can't quite remember. So try, try that as well. It's Spencer Pollard scale models. <laughs> oh, there you, go. there you go. It's even more straightforward than I thought. But also on Twitter as well. I, I do sort of put quite a lot on Twitter. You should be aware, though, I also put political stuff on Twitter. So if you're, you know, if you're expecting to go on there and, and not only put my and see my models, then you might also see other things as well that might <laughs> raise the hairs. 
slightly. I, I'm not always as polite as I perhaps am on here. That's all I'm going to say with that. Really. <laughs> but yes, plenty of plenty of places. There's plenty of places. But with the books, yeah, just keep an eye on that. And anybody that wants to, all, all the books sell out really quickly. So if you do want a copy of those books, then please let me know. Yeah, I've been very lucky to get a few, and I have the uh, the Mustang book right here next to me. Ah, uh, look, there it is. Yeah, so <laughs> I think I actually got one of your last ones. So um, I think you might have done actually. Yes, they, they they've developed, haven't they? Over the over time, they've uh, I, I have a lot of fun with those. I, I don't sort of stick to a set style through them, so I, I, I sort of develop them. And again, that's that's another one of those things that tends to be, you know, it tends to be an add-on in terms of my creative side, those books. And I do enjoy doing that. Yeah. You know, just, just to go on that and the evolution, I, I have the Mustang book. I have a few others, but one I've only been able to get through pocket mags is the garden of remembrance. Oh, right. Yeah. That's the the diorama that really sings to me, the Panther. And I believe it's pronounced Hoffelis Belgium. Yeah. Hoofelis Hoofelis. in Belgium. Yeah. I'm always on the lookout for a hard copy of that. So, well, I, I may have one. Okay. Actually, actually sold so if you send me send me a pm sure uh and remind me i i think i might have a copy that i can send you oh that'd be fantastic yeah i'll 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 do that i'm pretty sure that i have got a copy of somewhere of that so i will i will send you but one thing i am I, I've, I've been thinking about with that with the garden of remembrance book which was published t- over 10 years ago mm-hmm. it was quite a long time ago because i think the model was built in 2010 I have been thinking about reprinting it, mm-hmm. but I'm 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 not sure if I, if I can rebuild the files because they were a different program mm-hmm. from a different time. But if I can find a copy, you are more than welcome to it. Oh, thank you so much, Spencer. And you know, with that, I'll I'll close the interview with an extreme heartfelt thank you from myself and and certainly Scott. This last hour and forty five minutes has just been a pure joy. We've we've touched on topics that deal with the hobby that. I think really hit home and and really just make us think a little bit more and and hopefully not make us only better modelers but better people and how to grow the hobby within our very small community. So with that, thank you again. You're very welcome. Thank you for asking me along. I've really enjoyed it. It's been uh, yeah, very good. Thank you. Thanks from me as well, Spencer. Really enjoyed talking with you and getting to hear your perspective and especially enjoyed the legacy I guess I'd call them tributes that you're doing to Francois and also uh, the upcoming ones to Shep Payne. Look forward to those. Anyway, thanks again for your time. Hopefully uh, we can have another conversation or meet at a, a show sometime. Yeah, absolutely. Whenever, you, whenever you'd like to do that, just give me a shout. Uh, now that I've got this loaded up, um, <laughs> yes, which is a story for another day, <laughs> I think. <laughs> yes. So yeah, thank you very much. Very much appreciated. And I hope, you know, everybody that, takes time to listen to this it enjoys you know my thoughts on it really so yeah brilliant stuff and maybe as well we'll get together at some point in the in the future at a show that'd be great wouldn't it the first pints on me oh man <laughs> i'm always i'm always willing to take that absolutely <laughs> thanks again spencer not a problem Welcome back. I want to thank Spencer Pollard for joining us. It was a great conversation. We really enjoyed getting to know Spencer and hearing his perspective on our hobby. It was really, really interesting, and I hope you guys enjoyed it as much as we did. 
Well, that's about it for episode 18. Thanks so much for listening. Just a reminder that you can leave us feedback about this podcast at our Plastic Posse Facebook page, or you can email us at plasticpossepodcast at gmail.com. Again, we want to thank our special guest, Spencer Pollard, for coming on to the show and talking with John and Scott. That was really terrific. And I know, personally, again, sad I missed that one, but uh, you guys held it down and delivered a, a fantastic interview, so thank you. We also want to thank our sponsor, Goodman Models, makers of the awesome Super Sanding Blocks. Get your set over at www.goodmanmodels.com. Well, partners, thank you for listening again, and yeehaw! Coming up on episode 19, we'll be back with another exclusive Plastic Posse Podcast Roundtable episode. And so until next time, to, all, to y'all out there in the posse, especially to you guys, that be you, Scott, TJ, JB, uh, have a great couple weeks, and we'll talk to you soon. Awesome. See you, Doug. Take care, guys. Have a good one. See ya, partner. <laughs>